The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk to Professor Ali Atai from Zaytuna College. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Brother Paul. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. It's uh, an honor and a privilege um, to join you once again on Blogging Theology. I know I speak for uh, many when I say it's the best channel on YouTube. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continue to bless you and your work and uh, congratulations. Another milestone, 150,000 uh, subs. So, yeah, alhamdulillah. It's, a, it's, a, it's great to, uh, and this is great because it means more people can see your content uh, as well. So uh, this is all, all good news. So for those uh, few who don't know, Dr. Ali Atai is a scholar of biblical hermeneutics, specializing in sacred languages, comparative theology, and comparative literature. At Zaytuna College, Dr. Atai has taught Arabic, creedal theology, comparative theology, sciences of the Quran, Introduction to the Quran and Seminal Ancient Texts. He received his MA in Biblical Studies from Pacific School of Religion, and in 2016, his PhD in Cultural and Historical Studies in Religion from the Graduate Theological Union. He's a native Persian speaker and can read and write Arabic, Hebrew, and Greek. And he joined the Zaytuna College faculty in 2012. In this Blogging Theology special, Professor Ali Atai will do a presentation entitled Establishing the Preservation of the Quranic Text. And this is going to be a very wide ranging discussion, looking also at the biblical manuscripts and common objections from Orientalists and Christian polemicists, such as the holes in the narrative accusation. So without more ado, it's over to you, sir. Thank you once again. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Muhammadin wa alihi wa ajma'in. Believe it or not, I actually have a slideshow presentation for today. So hopefully this will go smoothly. Let me uh, share the screen here. Okay. Perfect. All right. Um, so so today um, will be uh, part one of a, of a two-part presentation on the Quran. My focus today 
will be exclusively on establishing the preservation of the Quranic text. Uh, and the next time, inshallah, I'll look at the actual um, content and message and style of the Quran, as well as the intertextuality of the Quran. Mm. Uh, that is to say how the Quran engages uh, with the texts and traditions of Jews and Christians, the canonical gospels, the apocryphal gospels, the legend of Alexander, Talmudic tradition, etc. How the Quran is inimitable. Um, are there histor historical errors in the Quran? Are there grammatical mistakes in the Quran? Are there foreign words in the Quran, etc.? That will be part two, wow. uh, inshallah. Uh, but today, uh, our focus uh, is the Quran's preservation. Uh, so let's let's establish what the text is before we examine it. Uh, and I, I do apologize in advance. My presentation is a bit long-winded. Um, I have about 40 slides that I want to present, uh, but I, I thought it was important to be as thorough as possible for the sake of the viewers. Absolutely. Uh, as you said, there are several, there are several issues that um, I'm frequently asked about that I think I need to address. Um, and so I've tried to incorporate my thoughts about those issues in this uh, presentation. Mm. Now, now, before I officially start, um, I want to say um, as something of a prologue uh, that I believe that the underlying factor that has led to many modern Muslims doubting the preservation of the Quran is actually their own ignorance of the traditional sciences of the Quran. In fact, their misapprehension as to what the Quran even is, the very nature, the method, and purpose of the Quranic revelation. Um, uh, many Muslims have outright abandoned uh, the study of traditional texts concerning the Ulum al-Quran, uh, and have rather relied on amateur preachers and apologists really to teach them about their scripture. Uh, and in fact, they were miseducated by these preachers and apologists who in their zeal to repudiate the Bible and draw a sharp distinction between the Quran and the Bible, they began to assert that the text of the Quran was uniformic in nature from its very inception. Um, that unlike the Bible that has numerous textual variants, the Quran has no textual variants. And of course, this is not exactly true. Uh, this is an inaccurate sort of reductionist, that is to say, simplistic understanding of the Quran that I think has harmed our community. Yeah. So, so what is accurate? I mean, what do we learn from our traditional literature written by our traditional ulama? Uh, we learn that the Quran has, has never been a uniformic text, but rather a multiformic text. And it does have textual variants, but these are not of the same kind as those of the Bible, specifically the New Testament. So there is a major difference. Okay, so the textual variants of the New Testament were deliberate changes made to the text uh, by scribes um, uh, decades and centuries after the Prophet Isa, salam, after the Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, uh, that were motivated by theological rivalries among early Christian groups. Uh, that definitely made a huge impact uh, on the theology of Christianity. Uh, the textual variants of the Quran are... Yeah. Uh, Can I just, uh, just point it? Sorry, yeah. I, you're just beginning, but I just want to say I will mention some excellent books for people to follow on yeah. if they wanted to read about, for example, Bart Ehrman's book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. The very point you're making, the effect of early Christological controversies on the text of the New Testament. This is an academic work. I've read it. It's highly regarded mainstream scholarship, and it illustrates in much more detail um, the point that Professor Ali Atai is making here. So sorry to interrupt, but I will mention this and other works yeah. which, uh, from a Western uh, textual critical perspective, right. substantiate in a mainstream way the points that mm -hmm. Professor Ali Atai is making. So sorry to interrupt. Exactly. Thank you very much. Yeah, that is absolutely mainstream, and that book is a brilliant text. Uh, anyone who's interested 
interested in textual studies, they have to they have to get this text. They have to go through it. Um, the orthodox corruption of scripture is absolutely something that needs to be done. Um, now, the textual variants of the Quran uh, uh, are traceable to the Prophet Muhammad himself, uh, actually, and are a facet of the very revelatory nature of the Quran. In other words, the Quranic variants are part of the revelation. So, so that is a big difference. And we'll unpack that, obviously, during this presentation. But it is the alim, right, the scholar, the traditional scholar, not the amateur preacher who can explain these things to us mm-hmm. in sophistication and uh, attention uh, to nuance. Uh, now, this is where the enemies of Islam sort of come into the picture, right? So these revisionists and polemicists um, who are agnostic, they're atheist, they're Christian, they've taken notice um, of the average Muslim's ignorance of his own traditional literature uh, and his claim of textual uniformity. And so these critics, what they do is they dip into our traditional literature and they pull out these isolated narrations that debunk the claim of textual uniformity a claim that no real Muslim scholar ever made. And then they deceptively present this to their audiences as evidence that the Quran is not preserved. But what the critics don't tell their audiences is that the traditional Muslim authorities have always believed that the Quran was revealed in a multiformic fashion and that this has nothing to do with the Quran's preservation. All traditional authorities maintained uh, that the Quran was preserved in light of its multiformic nature. In other words, these critics weaponize our own literature against us, okay? They use our own traditional literature to basically tear down the straw men that ignorant Muslims constantly keep creating with their misguided claims of textual uniformity. And I'll explain, obviously, what I mean when I say the Quran is multiformic. This is extremely important to understand. It is an um, important point. I'm extremely pleased and, and very grateful that you're making, you're stressing this point at the outset because it is of fundamental importance. Fundamental importance, exactly, exactly. Uh, but I, I want to begin by actually talking about the external evidence of the Quran in the first century of the Hijra of the Prophet Muhammad. The Hijra, of course, is the migration of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his followers from Mecca to Medina in 622 uh, of the Common Era. Um, so let's go to uh, the slide here. Okay. All right. So to, to put it as a question then, how well is the Quran attested in manuscripts, physical manuscripts that are dated to the first century Hijri? Now, a per- perhaps a comparison with the New Testament will help us put things into perspective here. Uh, first of all, how, how, how does a textual scholar date a manuscript? Well, according to Dr. Haitham Sitki, who has been on blogging theology uh, and is probably the, the foremost uh, scholar of Quranic manuscripts uh, in the world, he's the executive director of ICSA, um, textual scholars basically look at three things, three main things, right? So paleography, orthography, and, and radiocarbon dating. So paleography looks at letter shapes. How- the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. 
American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. How words are written. Orthography looks at spelling conventions, how words are spelled. And radiocarbon dating is a, is a type of scientific analysis um, that gives age estimates uh, for carbon-based materials. Uh, so these are the three main things, okay? Now, now, Jesus, peace be upon him, was speaking and teaching the gospel in the late 20s and early 30s of the first century CE. So how much of the 27-book canon of the New Testament is attested in extant manuscript witnesses that so are dated to the by extant simply means that we physically have today existing manuscripts. Exactly. We can actually go to a museum and say, that's the manuscript there. We can physically touch it. The extant is just an academic way of saying an actual existing manuscript in today's world. Yes, exactly. We have them in our possession. Now keep in mind that traditional Christians believe that all of the New Testament books were written in the first century and that they were all authored by apostolic authority. Uh, that is to say, eyewitnesses to Jesus's life and message. Of course, many Christian apologists who are also anti-Muslim polemicists continue to hold to this view, uh, the view that all of the New Testament was written in the first century by men who interacted with Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, in some way. Uh, so what percentage of extant New Testament manuscripts are dated to first century CE? The answer is zero percent, literally zero um, the absolute oldest extant manuscript of the New Testament is, is John Ryland's Papyrus Number 52, uh, which is the size of an ace of spades uh, and contains a few verses of John 18 on its recto and verso. Uh, P52 is dated between 125 to 150 of the Common Era. So that's anywhere from 90 to 120 years after the life of Jesus Christ. I, I've, then, actually, I, just, I, I've actually seen it. It's in the University of Manchester hmm. in the John Ryland's Library, what, uh, um, not, far, not too far from here. It's a credit card size fragment written on both sides in, in Greek, the language of the gospel itself. And that is the earliest uh, bit of the manuscript of the New Testament anywhere in the world. And it's dated yeah. uh, as early as 150 CE. This is after Jesus's alleged birth date, that is. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the oldest thing. That's that's all there. Absolutely. Then maybe P one hundred four, which contains a few verses of Matthew twenty one. It's probably dated one fifty to two hundred. Then perhaps P ninety, which is also uh, a, a small section of John eighteen, also dated between one fifty and two hundred. So let me say it like this: Out of the nearly eight thousand verses in the New Testament, zero are attested in manuscripts dated to the first century. Zero out of eight thousand verses. And about, I don't know, 25 to 50 verses, let's say it's 50, 50 out of 8,000 verses are attested in manuscripts before the year 200 of the Common Era, all of them between 125 and 200. So let me, let me say it again so it's clear. Zero percent of the New Testament is attested in manuscripts from the first century CE, and less than one percent is attested in manuscripts from the second century. So I'm talking about manuscript papyri that is extant, that scholars have, as you said, in their possession. Um, however, Christian apologists uh, like Daniel Wallace at Dallas Theological Seminary, they, you know, they'll argue that you know, P46 and P66 and P77, these other papyri, P98, P103, these could all be second century as well, although this is highly disputed. 
I think most uh, textual critical scholars date these papyri between 200 and 300 of the common era, but okay, fine. Let's say they're second century. They're still not first century. There is nothing from the first century of Christianity. Okay. And of course, Wallace um, had that infamous moment, right? He, he actually announced uh, in a live debate with Bart Ehrman in 2012 that a first century manuscript of Mark, right, had, had just been discovered and that the dating was confirmed by, this is what he said, the best papriologist on the planet, a man whose reputation is unimpeachable. Those are his exact words. And of course, this turned out to be a fraud. Uh, there is nothing from the first century of Christianity. Okay. Now, a, a Christian apologist may interject here and say, um, well, um, there were early church fathers, you know, the so-called apostolic fathers, um, at the end of the first century who referenced books in the Pauline corpus. Okay. But here I think we should make a distinction, right? So as Muslims, we're interested in Jesus, peace be upon him. Mm. Uh, Muslims and Christians both believe in Jesus. Muslims and Christians believe that Jesus brought the gospel. So, so even if Paul's letters are referenced in documents um, outside the canon written at the end of the first century, Paul is not Jesus. So there were three apostolic fathers who arguably wrote in, in the first century of the common era, uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and Polycarp of, of Smyrna. Uh, so let's start with Clement of Rome. He died 99 of, of the common era. He was the author of First Clement, which is generally regarded as genuine yep. and written at the end of the first century maybe 96 of the common era. Yeah. Uh, First Clement is a letter that Clement of Rome, also known as C Pope Clement, uh, wrote to Corinth right, to advise them on certain church issues. And Clement quoted Paul uh, several times. He quoted Jesus once uh, in 46.8 of First Clement. He quoted Jesus from the synoptic tradition, the saying of the millstone. Uh, but Clement uh, did not cite it as coming from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. No. Uh, but the more important question is, do we now have a copy of First Clement from the first century where this one pericope from the synoptic tradition is attested? And the answer is no, it is not extant. Okay, uh, so moving on. Number two, Ignatius of Antioch, who died 108 of the common era, according to Eusebius of Caesarea. Oh, by the way, just to point out about a poor, poor old Ignatius, uh, uh, he was actually eaten by lions in Rome. I mean, that was his fate. And he was taken across uh, the Mediterranean to various towns and he wrote various letters to various churches on his way to be eaten by lions. Yes. He was a, a martyr. I mean, sometimes it's a pretty horrible way to go. But his letters, uh, the ones we now know of, are seen to be authentic, as I'm sure you Got to tell us anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So Ign Ignatius, he ran afoul of Emperor Trajan, right? So he was he was condemned to death in Rome. And while traveling from Antioch to Rome, he wrote these seven letters to various Christian congregations. They're called the seven Ignatian epistles. Uh, and in these letters, he quotes a handful of verses from Matthew, Luke and John. There are several problems here, though. Uh, number one, uh, if he wrote these letters while en route to his martyrdom in 108, uh, then these are not first century attestations of the Gospels. 108 is in the second century. Uh, number two, many historians of the modern period highly doubt the reliability of Eusebius, who tells us the story of Ignatius, because Eusebius was basically Constantine's spin doctor. Uh, and so many historians actually date the death of Ignatius to the 130s or even 140s. 
Uh, and number three, um, there are other historians and Protestant authorities who maintain that these letters are total forgeries. So they're highly disputed. But let's just say for argument's sake, okay, and, and in this presentation, you'll notice I'm going to make a lot of argument's sake arguments or statements, I should say. Um, let's say for argument's sake that Ignatius wrote these in 99 of the Common Era, the first century. Do we now have copies of the Ignatian epistles from the first century where he quotes a handful of verses from the Gospels? No, they're not extant. Okay. And this is also very interesting, kind of as a, as a side note. According to the uh, early church tradition, Ignatius was a disciple of John the Apostle. Uh, and of course, uh, John was believed to have written the Gospel of John. Of course, nobody really believes this anymore. Um, according to the dubious Eusebius, Ignatius was the, the third bishop of Antioch after Peter and Avodius. Uh, also, um, this is really interesting, early church fathers said that the boy that Jesus took in his arms in Mark 9 and said something to the effect of anyone who welcomes a, a, a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me, something like that. That boy was Ignatius. Uh, this, is, this is what many proto-Orthodox church fathers said. Who knew Ignatius was born and raised in Capernaum in the Galilee uh, in, in Palestine. Uh, so, so historians who date Ignatius's death to the 130s or 140s compellingly contend that the early church kind of fudged the dates, right? They sort of pushed everything back because they wanted to desperately create a linked chain of transmission yeah. Yeah. that went from Ignatius directly to Christ, okay? So in, in the nomenclature of Islam, they wanted to create an isnad muqtasil marfur. They wanted to create a chain of transmission that is totally linked and goes back to a prophet, uh, but their deception has been uh, exposed. And this, this was probably because the Jews were debating them about the Christian Jesus, whether they were rabbinical Jews or Jewish Christians. And in, Judea, in, in Judaism, the idea of a Masora, right, an Isnad is very important, actually. And so we can imagine, like the Jews who were saying to these Pauline Christian fathers, you believe that Jesus, uh, the Jewish Messiah, was God? Uh, and that uh, he was a human sacrifice under whose authority? And the Christians would say, well, my teacher so-and-so learned from Ignatius, who learned from John the Apostle, who learned from uh, Jesus, so clearly a fabricated chain of yeah. transmission. The, the third apostolic father was Polycarp of Smyrna. Hmm. Uh, his, his, his only surviving work that is genuine is his letter to the Philippians, where he quotes Jesus from Matthew uh, four times, the Lucan Jesus once, and the Markan Jesus once. So that's it, six quotations. Uh, interestingly, his, his letter begins with a reference to the death of Ignatius. So, so this is clearly a second century document, probably 140, 145 uh, of the common era. I mean, he died in 155. So we don't have anything extant from Polycarp from that period. The early church uh, also said that Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. Now, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian of Carthage, Irenaeus of Smyrna, Origin of Alexandria, all of these celebrated early church fathers who extensively quoted the New Testament, they were all either in the second or third centuries, okay? So even if we had their original autograph writings in our hands, which we don't, but even if we did, they would still not be first century documents. So here's the bottom line here on the slide. At the bottom of the slide, there are zero extant manuscripts. There are zero extant witnesses of the four gospels from the first century, either as manuscripts or as writings of first century Christians. Okay, zero. Um, and, uh, and by the way, uh, um, 
this is why, by the way, many historians actually uh, date Luke, Acts, and John uh, to the second century. I think David Litwa dates Luke, Acts, in the second century. Um, some scholars think that the writings of Josephus may have influenced uh, the Gospel of Luke. Um, with respect to um, Acts specifically, you have like Richard Purvo, Amy Jill Levine, um, Steve Mason, Burton Mack, Dennis McDonald, Paula Fredrickson, all date Acts to the second century. And so and, Bart Ehrman himself is inclined to accept a later date as well. So actually the dating is not getting earlier and earlier, it's getting later and later in, uh, in, yeah. some, in some uh, of these subjects, Luke Acts, as you say. And that's a very different trajectory, perhaps, from the, the Quranic uh, story, which yeah. obviously we're going to juxtapose and compare and contrast. Exactly. Very different. Exactly the opposite. Yeah. In, in his preamble, Luke himself says, right, as we know, that there were were many poloi, poloi gospels, many gospels uh, that were written before he decided to write one. This makes a lot more sense if he's writing in the second century. The Acts Seminar uh, concluded after 10 years of research that the book of Acts is second century. Acts is, of course, a sort of whitewashed, that is to say, sort of sanitized, cleaned up, idealized story of the early church that tries to minimize or downplay the massive conflict between, we can say, Camp Paul and Camp James slash Peter yeah. that we glean from the earlier Pauline epistles. Uh, most scholars date the Gospel of John to 90 or, or, not, or 100 of the Common Era, some earlier, some later, even as late as 140. So dating the original composition of Luke, Acts, and John to the end of the first century, which I am willing to do, is still being generous to the Christian tradition. Okay. Now, now here a Christian apologist might say something like, well, just because a scholar or two attributes a late date to one or two of the Gospels doesn't mean anything. John Wansbro dated the original composition of the Quran to the 8th century. Does that mean he's right? Right? So, so here's the difference. This is a false analogy. This is a smokescreen. It's a desperate sort of deflection. Uh, John Wansbro and his ilk have been definitively falsified. Uh, and, and I'll show you why in a minute. Uh, the contentions of Wandsboro and, and Crone uh, are sitting really in the dustbins of history. Uh, yeah. However, historians who date some of the Gospels to the, to the second century have good reasons for doing so. The biggest reason is that there are zero extant manuscripts of any Gospel dated to the first century, and no Christian writer is undisputedly quoting these Gospels in the first century. When Clement of Rome quoted Jesus' statement about the millstone, he doesn't cite Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Perhaps he quoted this from oral tradition. Perhaps he was paraphrasing Mark or Matthew. It's not clear at all that he has knowledge of Luke, Acts, or John. So let me say it again, and then we'll move on. There are zero extant manuscripts. There are zero extant witnesses of the four Gospels from the first century, either as manuscripts or as writings of first century Christians. And on that point, if I could just uh, make another plug, uh, all, all these books. Um, this one is Whose Word Is It Anyway? The Story Behind the New Testament, uh, Who Changed the New Testament and Why by Bart Ehrman. And it talks about these manuscript traditions, the, uh, the dating of them, and also how they were uh, changed as well. The copyists of the early Christian writings uh, and originals that matter. The fact that we don't have originals and why that matters and theologically motivated alteration of the text. So this book is uh, well worth, it's, a, it's not really written for an academic audience, but more for an educated public. So I recommend that to follow on what uh, Dr. Ali Atai has just said. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent text, a good, a good starter book to get into these issues. Uh, now let's look at the Quran's attestation.
interpretation in its first century, okay? So I'm not talking about the biography of the prophet, right? I'm not talking about the sirah. I'm talking about the Quran, okay? So, so like Jesus, the prophet Muhammad was also active in the 20s and early 30s of his century and also earlier. So the first Islamic century corresponds roughly to the year 622 to 722 of the Common Era, but I will actually limit things to only the 7th century of the Common Era. So 699 CE is sort of the latest. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This date. Hmm. There, are, there are over two dozen confirmed first century Hijri, that is seventh century CE manuscripts of the Quran extant right now, and many others out there waiting to be identified. And Dr. Sitli says this number will definitely increase Yes. as more manuscripts wait to be analyzed in their paleography, orthography, and radiocarbon dating. So Mingana 1572a, uh, also known as you know, the, the Birmingham manuscript, this manuscript was, a, was initially misdated as a second century Hijri manuscript, uh, primarily because the script was wrongly identified as Kufic. It is in fact Hejazic. Uh, in 2011, Dr. Abel had the manuscript radiocarbon dated, and the results were stunning. Uh, it was dated no later than 645 of the Common Era with a 95.4% accuracy. So that is 13 years after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him. That is right around the time Uthman became the third caliph. Furthermore, manuscript 328C was identified as being from the same codex as the Birmingham manuscript. So, so this comes out to about 8% of the Quran dated to within 13 years of the Prophet at the, at, at the absolute latest. Hmm. Uh, I mean, based on this dating, one could make the case that Mingana 1572a and manuscript 328c was originally a companion codex, the mushaf of an unknown companion uh, of the prophet. But is it just this 8%, right? How much of the entire Quran is attested in manuscript witnesses from the first century Hijri? The answer is the entirety of the Uthmanic text. Okay, the, the website Islamic Awareness has listed all Quranic manuscripts that are dated within the first uh, Islamic century. And according to the researchers who run the site, uh, these manuscripts constitute up to 96% of the Quran. Now, Dr. Sitli believes that that data is outdated, actually, yeah. and it's closer to 100%. We have 100% of the Quran in extant manuscript witnesses from the first Islamic century. Okay. And of course, the main uh, mode is, of transmission is, I mean, this is not your subject now, uh, maybe later, but the main mode of the transmission of the Quran is not through manuscript form, but through mutawata, multiple, multiple transmission right. orally, uh, and in such a fashion that it's impossible for it to have been forged or altered, because so many people uh, uh, memorize it, and they're all agreement on the same Quran. Right. You're, you're talking about the, the textual manifestation of that. So the, unlike the Bible, which is really just a physical man manuscript tradition, the Quran is primarily oral in its mode of transmission, I would suggest. Exactly. Primarily oral. Very, very important idea. And yeah, we're going to get there, inshallah. Right. Um, but just to 
reiterate the point again, there's, we have 100% of the Quran and extant manuscript witnesses. And so this is the opinion of, of Dr. Haitham Sitli, Dr. Manayin Van Putin, uh, Dr. Sean Anthony. Uh, uh, these scholars obviously hold opinions that I disagree with, and I'll talk about that. Uh, but when it comes to the attestation of the Quran, we are all in agreement. The entirety of the text is attested in the first century Hijri. So this is without question, okay? Um, according to Dr. Sitli, the, the process of manuscript dating has become much more accurate in recent years. So some manuscripts, uh, as you said earlier, have been reconsidered uh, and dated earlier than before. Uh, Dr. Sitki mentions that a manuscript called Sarai Medina 1A in Turkey is now believed to be a first century manuscript wow. written in Hejazic and Kufic and is more or less the entire Quran. Um, other uh, first century manuscripts include the Takkapi manuscript, which is late first century, possibly early second century of the Hijra, it's 99% of the Quran. Uh, the Tubagin manuscript is first century. It's dated between 649 and, and 675 of the Common Era. It's about 26% of the Quran. There's something called the Codex Pericino Petropolitanus, uh, which is 46% uh, of the Quran. You have Codex BL, British Library, OR 2165, 57% of the Quran. Uh, Codex Meshhad, 90%. Codex 331, 29%. Codex 330G, 21%, Codices Marcel, 17, 18, 19, et cetera, et cetera. And many more in the first century, including the San'a palimpsest, okay, which is called San'a 1 or C1, which is uh, about 41% of the Quran, but a different textual tradition, okay, than the other manuscripts. And we'll talk about that, but it is by and large identical to the Uthmani textual tradition. And we'll talk about why it's slightly different. Uh, this is a great topic that, that only supports the Muslim narrative, okay? Uh, so here's the bottom line. The entire Quran, without dispute, is attested in multiple manuscript witnesses dated within the 7th century before 700 of the Common Era. Um, so uh, I would say it's, you know, it's, it's high time for these radical historical revisionists and, and highly bitter Christian polemicists uh, to, simply come, to simply come to terms with this. I mean, this doesn't mean that the contents of the Quran are true, right? We, I mean, we'll talk about the actual content and teachings and style of the Quran in a future podcast, inshallah. So that is a different question. Uh, for today's podcast, my goal is simply to convey to the audience uh, that what we regard nowadays as the Quran uh, was first uttered by the historical Muhammad of Arabia, peace be upon him. And of course, this is the general historical consensus. He is the source of the Quran, historically speaking. Um, whether it's a revelation or not is a question for next time, whether it's miraculous or, or inimitable, um, uh, that's, that's next time, uh, inshallah. So moving on here, um, let's, let's talk about uh, the Ahruf, okay? So this is also an extremely important topic, okay? Now, Dr. Yasser Qadi, he made some controversial statements um, not too long ago um, about the Quran with respect to the topic of uh, the ahruf and the qira'at and the relationship. And, and I would translate ahruf as recitational variations. Oh. Okay. Ahruf is recitational variations and qira'at as uh, canonical reading traditions. And I'll elaborate uh, on these uh, shortly, uh, inshallah. Now, I, I agree with Dr. Yasser that this can be a difficult topic. Okay. Uh, but I absolutely disagree with the notion that our narrative is somehow uh, deficient or ill-equipped when it comes to answering the inquiries of modern secular academics, there are no holes in our narrative. There, there is nothing about the ahruf or qira'at of the Quran that some Western scholar at Yale or Harvard can point 
out to a, a traditional alim that will throw that alim for a loop and confound him and give him some sort of existential crisis. We have unparalleled robust scholarship in these disciplines that goes back centuries across countless volumes, and it's all transparent. Okay. Okay. So it's well established in our tradition uh, that the Quran was revealed to the Prophet وسلم, upon seven letters, literally, sometimes translated as, as seven uh, modes. Again, I prefer seven types of recitational variations. Uh, so from our perspective, these ahruf are revelation. They are by design. They're, they're not by accident. The essential purpose of these ahruf, uh, these variations, is twofold. Okay? The first is theological, that the ahruf enrich our understanding of the kalam of God, the speech of God, the Qur'an. But by making the Qur'an a multiformic text, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up different meanings for us. We are enriched intellectually and spiritually by the ahruf. The ahruf give us a deeper engagement with the kalam Allah. And I'll give you examples, uh, inshallah. The second purpose is, uh, is practical. Uh, the ahruf are a means of taysir, right? They make the Quran's recitation and memorization easier for us. They give us options. There are multiple correct readings. There is recitational uh, latitude. And this is out of God's mercy. Again, this is by design, not by accident. The, the presence of the seven ahruf is, is ma'lum min ad-din. This is something that is well known and established in the religion. It cannot be denied. It's not some sort of secret. Uh, it's mentioned in numerous ahadith across multiple volumes. Uh, Bukhari and Muslim and Tirmidhi and Nasai, Mustan Ahmad, uh, Muwata Malik, Musannaf ibn Abi Sheba, etc. Over 20 companions mention this in our hadith corpus. Uh, many would say that it's mutawatir lafdi, in other words, mass transmitted in its, in its very uh, wording. Uh, and the most eminent secular uh, textual critics and historians of today uh, maintain uh, that the tradition of the seven ahruf most likely goes directly back to the prophet himself uh, because of the popularity and antiquity uh, of this tradition. In other words, the tradition of the seven ahruf was not invented by later Muslim scholars as a way of sort of explaining why there is recitational variance in the Quran. Historically, the source of the tradition of the Ahruf was the prophet, that he used it as a way of explaining why there was recitational variance in the Quran. So, so that is very important. And just a couple of hadith here. Uh, the prophet وسلم, said, according to Ibn Abbas, is recorded by Imam al-Bukhari, that Gabriel read the Quran to me in one harf, harf is the singular of ahruf, and I continued to ask him for increase until it reached seven ahruf. Uh, Imam Ahmad reports, uh, this is the famous hadith between a dispute between Umar and Hisham. So Umar and Hisham ibn Hakim, radiallahu anhuma, two companions, they each read the same verse from Surah Al-Furqan differently. Okay, so they went to the Prophet sallallahu In fact, Umar dragged Hisham to the Prophet. He took him by his collar. So, so the Muslims, from the very beginning, they were very intent on getting the Quran exactly right and investigating um, uh, readings that were questionable. And so the Prophet asked Umar to recite, and Umar recited, and then the Prophet said, Hakada unzilat. Thus it was revealed. And then the Prophet asked Hisham to recite. So Hisham recited, and then the Prophet said, Hakada unzilat. Like that it was revealed, or thus it was revealed. But then he concluded by clarifying, In the Hadar Quran, unzila ala sabati ahruf, fakra umata yasara. That the Quran 
Quran indeed was revealed in seven ahruf. So read what is easy for you. And, and just a third report, Imam Muslim reports that Ubay ibn Ka'b said that he entered the mosque and he heard the recitation of two different from each other as well as different from his own. So a type of doubt, he said, entered into his heart. And Dr. Yasser, he, he mentioned this hadith to make a point that even a great companion like Ubay ibn Ka'b was initially puzzled by this um, multiformic aspect of the Quran. It's very unique to the Quran. Uh, and then the prophet explained the ahruf and their purpose to him and the doubt left him. And this hadith supports our narrative that there were several companion reading traditions before the standardization of the text by the Uthmani Codex Committee. And we're going to talk about that. But this is what the committee had to work with. Um, and there are other reports as well. But, but here's the main point I want to, to emphasize again. Um, it is most probable historically, historically, that the Prophet himself is the source of these recitational variations in the Quran, that he recited the Quran in various ways, and that he claimed that the reason for this was the seven ahruf. Now, a Christian, an atheist, you know, a secular historian will say that he doesn't believe that the prophet uh, is receiving uh, receiving these words from, the, from God. That's fine. Whether the prophet is receiving revelation or not, it makes the most sense historically to attribute at least a portion of these uh, textual variations uh, to the prophet himself. Um, now, a historian might claim uh, that other recitational uh, variations that Muslims regard as authentic uh, sprang up after the prophet as well. I mean, I, I don't agree with that, and I'll show you why. Uh, but I think it must be acknowledged by historians that the recitation of the Quran as a multiformic phenomenon has a prophetic provenance, a prophetic origin, that at the very least, the starting point of these variations is not in the post-prophetic period. Uh, I mean, I think the most an unbeliever or a, a, a skeptical historian uh, could say is something like, okay, fine, the prophet invented the concept of the Ahruf because he couldn't remember everything he had previously said. I mean, of course, this is not a historical argument, but rather highly subjective, uh, wishful thinking. Now, anti-Muslim polemicists, they love to give uh, Muslim lay people, the sort of general Muslim masses, uh, the impression that the traditional ulama were not forthright about these things, the seven ahruf, that the ulama were sort of keeping these things a secret because they were afraid or embarrassed uh, or something that this would somehow compromise the preservation of the Quran um, or that the ulama lied to them and said that the Quran uh, was a uniformic text. This is totally false. All of the seminal kutub of ulum al-Quran, all, all of the seminal texts of the sciences of the Quran written by the traditional ulama of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah have a section or a chapter on Ahruf and, and Qira'at. Okay, uh, this is not some secret teaching uh, that Muslim scholars have been covering up uh, only to be uncovered by these honest and brave Orientalists. <laughs> uh, no, the seven Ahruf have nothing to do with the preservation of the Quran. None of the ulama who wrote about the Ahruf said that the Quran was not preserved. Traditional scholars are proud of the fact that the Quran was revealed, ala sab'ati Ahruf. They praise God that the Quran was revealed. This is an amazing and beautiful and elegant and unique aspect of the Quran. And I'll get into some examples. But here, here's a quote from the late M.M. Al-A'zami, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, from his fantastic book, and I recommend this book, The History of the Quranic Text. He says, although contemporary scholars outside of the Islamic text context have offered a range 
of imaginative, yes, there it is, imaginative interpretations to get to the, quote, real Quran, those unfamiliar with the Islamic intellectual tradition should remember that every last, quote, variant or, quote, alternate reading used as evidence that the classical Islamic account is inaccurate comes out from the Islamic intellectual tradition itself. Yeah. Okay. If I can just uh, just show uh, people uh, the copy of this book is actually a second edition uh, that's uh, recently come out. And just to give it its full title, because that's quite significant, the history of the Quranic text from revelation to compilation, a comparative study with the Old and New Testaments. So this is really as germane to your point. And this is the second edition. Um, I, I do recommend it, obviously, as you do. Thank yes. You. Yes. Excellent text. Excellent text. Um, and he also uh, has several articles that you can find on, on this topic. Um, okay, uh, let's go to the next one here. Hmm. So um, what exactly are the Ahruf? Okay, this is, a, this is a very important question. There is a difference of opinion as to exactly uh, what they are, okay? But they are there. I mean, there's no doubt about this. And some opinions are stronger than others. Uh, Imam Suyuti lays out these opinions in his masterpiece called uh, Al-Idqan. Essentially, there are three main opinions, okay, um, and variations of these opinions. So one opinion is that they are seven dialects of Arabic, right? So Abu Ubaid, Qasim ibn Salam, uh, he said that the seven ahruf are seven dialects of Arabic. This is not a strong opinion, however. Uh, the second opinion is that the ahruf are seven potential variations to any one word in the Quran. So any one word could have a maximum of seven, of seven different forms. Uh, I believe this was Imam Tabari's opinion. Uh, the third opinion, the, the Ahruf are seven categories of recitational variants in the Quran. So this is the opinion of Abu Fadl al-Razi, Ibn Qutayba, Imam al-Jazali. Um, the Ahruf are seven categories of recitational variants, mm. although different scholars have some slight differences in their final categorizations. This is perhaps the strongest opinion. The seven Ahruf are seven categories of recitational variants in the Quran that were all recited by the prophet or approved by the prophet. So um, let's look at a, a few examples here then. Um, so there is nominal variation. So this is one harf, okay? This is one uh, of, uh, type of variation called nominal variation. And so the classic example, right, is in Al-Fatiha, Maliki Yomadin and Maliki Yomadin, right? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is both owner and king of the day of judgment. So what's the difference? Well, you see a king may, uh, may rule and set laws over a kingdom, but he may not necessarily own everything. And then an owner may own something, but may not necessarily rule over anything. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is both owner and king. He rules and owns everything. Uh, the prophet recited it both ways. We know this. We've known this for 1400 years. But the skeptic will say, well, how do you know the prophet recited it both ways? Uh, this just seems like Muslims are trying to cover up a discrepancy in their book. So this can be answered using common sense. We don't need to rattle off, you know, SNE, the chains of transmission for this. Uh, the prophet recited it both ways is as factual as saying Thomas Jefferson was the third president uh, of the United States or Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor. Um, I mean, people can question these things if they want. And, and there are people who always do. But let's let's ask a basic question. Um, how many times did the companions of the prophet hear the prophet recite Al-Fatiha, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let's think about this. The, the five daily prayers were mandated in the eighth year of the Meccan period. Al-Fatiha must be recited in every prayer cycle, 
Everybody knows this. So the prophet led the Sahaba in prayer for 15 years. Okay, so 15 times 354 days, the lunar year, comes out to 5,310 days. Uh, three of the daily prayers are audible in their first two cycles, Fajr, Maghrib, and Isha. Okay, so they would have heard the Fatiha six times a day from the prophet. So 5,310 days times six recitations a day equals nearly 32,000 recitations of Al-Fatiha. The Sahaba heard the Prophet recite Al-Fatiha 32,000 times over the course of 15 years. And this is not counting the times the Prophet recited Al-Fatiha in Friday prayer and in e-prayers or outside of prayer in conversations, lectures, and sermons. So did the companions of the Prophet really get Al-Fatiha wrong? Was, was there really a difference of opinion as to whether the Prophet said Malik or Malik? Did they really transfer this uncertainty to their, to their students? This is ridiculous. He, he obviously recited it both ways. The Quran was and continues to be a mass transmitted living tradition. It was constantly heard, recited, and memorized every day since its inception by dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions, now billions of people. But the madness doesn't end here. Uh, some Orientalists and modern Christian polemicists even go further into the twilight zone. Uh, they claim that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, one of the companions of the Prophet, uh, did not even believe that Al-Fatiha was part of the Qur'an. Uh, and, and, and this is ridiculous beyond comprehension. Um, Harvard's own Dr. Shadi Nasser makes this claim. I'll come back to this issue, uh, inshallah. We'll talk about that. Okay, so I mentioned a nominal variation as one harf. There's also inflectional variation. This is another harf, okay? And this has theological, uh, a, a theological and a practical purpose. So with respect to practice, okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, So, so anoint or, or, or wipe your heads and wash your feet. This is for wudu, right? For uh, lustrations or for, for ablutions before prayer. Uh, he also says, Wipe your heads and wipe your feet. Okay, so this harf is called inflectional variation. You see, generally, we wash our feet, but there are circumstances where we can wipe our feet. Uh, when do we do that? Well, we look to the sunnah, the normative practice of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he could have revealed another verse that said, wipe your feet, but he didn't do that. He inspired the Prophet to recite the same verse, but with a slight adjustment. He inspired the Prophet with another form of the verse. Okay, and this other form gives us an additional meaning. This is a very elegant aspect, a beautiful aspect uh, of, of the Quran. Uh, with respect to belief, uh, chapter 19, verse 34 of the Quran says, uh, That such was Jesus, the son of Mary. Okay, it is, it is the word of truth about which they vainly dispute. So, so here the word qawl is read in the accusative, qawl al-haq, meaning the aforementioned statement about Jesus is the true account. The Christological teaching found in the preceding verses presents the true Jesus, that Jesus is Nabiullah, a prophet of God. He's Abdullah, a servant of God, not the son of God. That Jesus, it says, is Mubarak, he's blessed, he's not Mal'un, he's not accursed. As Paul says in, in Galatians, uh, he's not a deceiver and blasphem blasphemer, uh, as the Talmud says. Uh, 
Now, this same verse, 1934, is also read. Here the word qawl is read in the nominative. So now the verse means, such was Jesus, the son of Mary. He is the word of truth about which they are vainly disputing. Jesus is the word of al-haq, the word of Allah, which is an honorific title. It's takrini. Uh, uh, which means honorific, as Imam al-Razi explains, if someone is known for his generosity, we can say that he is generosity itself, right? It's figurative. So Jesus was totally truthful in his speech. Why? Because all of his speech was wahi, it was revelation. He only spoke the words of God, therefore he's called the word of God as a way of honoring and praising him. Why does the Quran praise him in this way and emphasize his truthfulness? Probably because the New Testament ascribes to Jesus false prophecies. That is to say, falsifiable predictions. I mean, we talked about this in our last podcast when we looked at the Son of Man. It, it, the New Testament ascribes to him falsifiable predictions and blasphemy, while the, while the Talmud ascribes to him deception and, and sorcery. So in this honorific way, Jesus is the word of God in the Quran, not in the Neoplatonic or Trinitarian sense, where he is the pre-eternal logos who emanated from the very being of uh, of an ontologically uh, or hypostatically superior uh, deity. Um, the Quran says, Lam yalid wa lam yulad, right? So this is negating illa and ma'luliya. In other words, God did not cause or beget a person or son from his own being in pre-eternality, nor was God the effect of any logically prior cause. And I think essentially the Quran here is repudiating uh, the Nicene Creed. Uh, so, so we see how the ahruf enrich the meanings of the Quran. Okay, this is an aspect of the utter uniqueness of the Quran. And then, of course, in the next is, verse, is I think this is a beautiful point. It's, it's intellectually beautiful uh, and it enriches uh, one's appreciation of the Quranic revelation rather than uh, a more kind of one dimensional uh, understanding, which uh, some people have. So, this actually uh, elevates, as you say, is a more elegant understanding of the revelation and, and is a cause for wonder, I suppose, a cause for appreciation and wonder rather than uh, seeing it as a problem. It's something we, we need to raise our expectations of, of the, the word, yeah. see it in that more yeah. way that we have perhaps before. Yeah, it is, it is something, you know, the Quran is sui generis and we'll talk about yeah. the style of the Quran. We'll talk about the, you know, the um, sort of the, the ijaz, what's known as the ijaz of the Quran, the, the incapacitating nature of the Quranic discourse. And this is just another aspect of its utter uniqueness. And if something is a sui generis, if something is one of a kind, obviously there's going to be things that are going to be strange for people to, to understand. But this is part of that uniqueness that the Quran had revealed in seven ahruf. Okay. And here, here's, a, here's another, um, uh, a third type of ahruf is called dialectical variation. Um, so let's go here too. Yeah. So this is in, in uh, Al-Ikhlas in Surah 112, which gives our theology in brief. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ kufuan ahad." Okay, so why does it do this? Well, you see, the Arab was the first standard bearer of the religion. So God naturally facilitated things for him and revealed certain words and phrases uh, in different Arab dialects. Uh, the, the, the Arab is going to take this message to the world, right? This is the wisdom behind uh, this harf. The Quran says, 
Thus, we have revealed to you an Arabic Quran, an Arabic recital, in order for you to admonish uh, the mother of the cities, meaning Mecca, uh, and those around it. Um, the fourth harf is, uh, is called synonymic variation, synonymic variation. So in 49.6, the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, in ja'akum fasiqun binaba'in fatabayyanu, O you who believe, uh, if an immoral person brings you any news, investigate to tr- investigate the truth. Fatabayyanu. Uh, the same verse is read, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, in ja'akum fasiqun binaba'in fatathabbatu. O you who believe, if an immoral person brings you any news, ascertain the truth. So this is called synonymic variation. So investigate the matter, investigate the matter, ascertain the truth. Both are true. Make tabin, make tafbit. Either one can be bred in prayer because they both conform to the Uthmani Rasam, the consonantal skeleton, the shorthand text of the Uthmani codices. And both are authorized through Senna, through transmission. So you see the original Uthmani codices, and, and we'll get into the narrative here of the Uthmani codices, uh, did not have dots or vowel notations. Okay, no dots, no vowels, no fatha kasra dhamma, right? Uh, no, uh, you know, we see zir zebra pesh. So fatabayyanu, fatafabbatu are two authorized renditions of the skeletal, of the consonantal skeleton of the Uthmani textual tradition. Uh, and the remaining ahruf are verbal, particular, and syntactical variations. But I think the examples uh, given are uh, sufficient. Mm. Uh, now, now, Muslim scholars have described at length um, <clears throat> in the books of Ulum al-Quran that there are several readings in pre-Uthmanic companion codices that differed in their rasam, in their, tra- in their textual traditions, from the Uthmani rasam. Okay, so let's talk about the history of the Uthmanic textual tradition uh, and make sense of these companion codices. Okay, so so what happened between the revelation of the Quran and the standardization of the Uthmani textual tradition? Uh, So the Prophet recited the Quran in prayers and in lectures for 23 years, upon the seven ahruf, he recited the Quran as a multiformic text um, uh, various companions went home and recorded what they heard from him uh, in their personal codices. Okay, so these included Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, uh, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, uh, Abdullah ibn Abbas, uh, the author of C1, the author of the Sena Palimpsest, whom we can call Companion X, uh, and others. So these are the companion codices. So, so we have these various text types or textual traditions. This is a term used by Dr. Haytham Sitki the textual tradition of Ibn Mas'ud, the textual tradition of Ibn Ka'b, the textual tradition of Ibn Abbas, the textual tradition of, of Companion X, the, the author of C1. Um, so according to Muslim sources, during the Prophet's time, there was widespread memorization of the Quran, um, scribal recordings of the Quran, and an annual review of the Quran every Ramadan with the Archangel Gabriel. This review is called Al-Mu'arada. Uh, if historians are hesitant to accept the latter, then that's fine. But certainly it is a fact that in the Prophet's time, the recitation of the Quran was widespread uh, and it was being written down. Even Shadi Nasser concedes to this that the Prophet had scribes, Kutab al-Wahi. Uh, now, the vast, vast majority of the texts of these companion codices were in total agreement. Uh, however, according to our literary tradition, there were some minor differences between them. 
And our traditional scholars wrote at length about these differences, okay? They did not see this uh, as a problem of preservation uh, at all. Um, our classical tr tradition can easily account for these differences. Uh, we can say that they caused, they can say that they differed because of, of four things, okay? So various orthographies, in other words, the companions spelled words in different ways. They used different spelling conventions, right? Like, you know, Paul, you're in the UK, you would spell color differently than me. You'd spell it with a U. I don't use a U. There's many examples like this. It's still English. This does not affect the meaning whatsoever. Uh, number two, variance due to the revealed ahruf, where the rasam was different. And I'll give you possible examples later. Number three, scribal errors, you know, just kind of misremembering the exact syntax or the exact wording. I'll give you possible examples of that. And then number four, differences due to exegetical glosses or notes made by companions in their personal codices. Uh, and I'll give you possible examples uh, uh, of that as well. Uh, but let's continue the narrative here. Okay. So, so various companions, they go out into the Muslim world, the newly conquered lands. This was before the Uthmanic standardization. So prior to 650 of the common era. And they take their textual traditions with them. So Ibn Mas'ud goes to Iraq. Ubay ibn Ka'b goes to Syria, and Companion X goes to Yemen, okay? So multitudes of people now are becoming Muslim in these lands. And at some point, the Muslims in these lands outside of Medina begin to become aware of or come into contact with other textual traditions, okay? Textual traditions that they uh, did not know about, uh, that these, and these traditions are slightly different than what they were taught by their teachers, so this caused major unrest in these provinces. Now the Caliph Uthman عنه, is informed of this unrest. So he forms his codex committee in Medina around 650 of the common era, possibly a few years earlier. So he then attempted to recall all of these various manuscripts floating around the provinces because he is going to standardize the text based upon the dominant readings of the Quran in Medina at that time. He's going to standardize a text based upon the dominant readings of the Quran in Medina at that time. In other words, the most prevalent readings of the companions. Okay. He's also going to write the rasam, the consonantal skeleton, the shorthand text of the Quran in the orthography, the spelling conventions of the Qureshi dialect of Arabic, because this was the prophet's tribe and the majority of the Quran was revealed in this dialect. So these actions more or less stabilize the text once and for all. Now, uh, Haytham Sidqi and Van Putin and Benam Sadiqi and Mohsen Qudarzi, they all suggest that the Uthmani textual tradition was likely a critical addition itself. And I think this is consistent with our narrative. In other words, the Uthmani textual tradition was drawn out from the various companion textual traditions that were present in Medina. So the companion Zayd ibn Thabit, <clears throat> right, he calls for these manuscripts, and they were checked against each other, then checked against the, the memories of the Hafav, the memorizers and masters of the Quran, who had served on the Codex Committee. And only those readings that were the most widespread and popular were recorded in the various Uthmani codices that would be sent out into the regional provinces, the Amsar. Okay. Uh, according to Sitli Van Putin and Sean Anthony and others, all extant Quranic manuscripts today descend from a single text type the Uthmani text type, the Uthmani textual tradition, that is their textual stemma or textual family. 
all extant manuscripts, except for one, the lower text of C1, okay, the, 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 the Sanna Palimpsest. But all, but all of these scholars maintain that C1 and the Uthmani text type share a, quote, common ancestor. Okay, so Saadili calls this ancestor the prophetic archetype. C1 is, was an extremely important discovery, and we'll say more about it later, okay? But I think that with the discovery of a likely companion codex, we can now say with a strong degree of confidence uh, that, the, that the verse order in the companion codices was very fixed. In other words, the structure of the surahs was stable, not necessarily the surah order, although the surah order is generally longest to shortest, okay? In, in C1, uh, two verses are transposed, and one verse was clearly accidentally skipped. I mean, these are scribal yeah. errors, but I'll come back to C1, okay? So let's look at the diagram on the slide here. So the letter P at the top of the page uh, stands for prophetic archetype, okay? And represents all of the Quranic recitations of the prophet, ala sab'ati ahruf, okay? Uh, um, there are various arrows, right? Shooting down from P, at the end of one arrow, we see I am, that's Ibn Mas'ud, at the end of another arrow, we see C1, that's the Sun Apalamses, and then C2, C3, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, these represent the other companion codices. Uh, these are the various companion textual traditions that contain minor differences due to various spelling conventions, variations of the ahruf, possible scribal errors, and possible exegetical notes. So this is what Zaid had to work with. Now, under each companion textual tradition, there are arrows shooting down, but converging upon a single point, okay? We can call this point the Uthmani textual tradition. So the Uthmani textual tradition is a critical addition that incorporated the strongest readings from the existing companion textual traditions, which were themselves eyewitness recordings of the prophetic archetype. So in essence, the Uthmani textual Tradition was a compilation of the most widely attested readings of the prophetic archetype. The best of the best gathered from the companion textual traditions in Medina and checked against the memories of the Quran memorizers and masters. I mean, the committee could not have done a better job. Okay. The, the master of Mani Codex, called the Imam Manuscript, was then copied at least three times and sent out to the Amsar, right? These major metropolitan areas. The, the Andalusian scholar, uh, Abu Amr al-Dani, whose book, uh, Al-Muqnir, is, is a major reference when it comes to uh, qiraat and, and masahif of the Quran, manuscripts of the Quran. He's he cited several times in the Iqan by Suti. Al-Dani says that there were four Uthmani codices. Okay, so Medina, Kufa, Basra, and Syria. Okay, but he mentions there could have been up to seven. Now, Dr. Sitli conducted what he called phylogenetic analysis on these manuscripts. Which is, which is used in biology to track sort of evolutionary history of organisms. And so this analysis generated various stemmas or family trees of, of manuscripts. I don't exactly know how it all works, but he does. This is some you know, cutting edge stuff. Uh, basically, he analyzed and aggregated all of the extant Quran manuscripts that he can get his hands on and concluded that they all go back to four ancestral codices with the exception of the lower text of C1, the Sanna Palimpsest. Again, I'll talk about that later, inshallah. So all extant manuscripts, with the exception of C1, go back to Medina, Basra, Kufa, and Syria. And based on carbon dating, the time window, he says, is, quote, consistent with 650 CE, 
the time of the Caliph Uthman. So, so Sitki concludes, as, as does Van Putin and, and others, Nikolai Sinai, that the broad strokes, as it were, of the traditional Muslim narrative of the Quran standardization by Uthman around 650 <clears throat> is historically accurate. Okay, this is what the physical manuscript evidence points to. Yeah. Okay. Doc, Dr. Nazir Khan. I was just going to say, yes, uh, Professor Nikolai uh, Sinai is professor of Islamic studies at the University of Oxford, is one of the world's leading authorities on this. Um, he's a German scholar. He's not a, he's not a Muslim, of course. And his book on the historical critical introduction to the Quran was published last year, which I've got behind me. I was going to get it, but I'm not going to bother. But um, um, recommended uh, as well. But yes, he, he endorses the, the standard narrative, as you say. So these are top scholars. Muslim and non-Muslim, uh, there's a, a consensus, I think, gathering around this point. Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that is an excellent text. I mean, I highly recommend that for anyone um, who wants to, an introduction to higher criticism of the Quran. It's absolutely fabulous text. Uh, Dr. And, and I was going to say Dr. Nazir Khan, uh, he, he wrote a very good article uh, on the, the variance, uh, variant readings of the Quran. Quran. He said that the traditional Muslim narrative is true because, quote, the absence of any compelling evidence to challenge it, as well as, quote, the presence of considerable data in its support. Uh, now, now Sidley, um, uh, he further says that the algorithm suggests that the Medinan Codex is most likely the Uthmanic archetype. In other words, the Basran, Kufan, and Himsi, or Syrian codices, uh, were copied from the Medinan. The Medinan Codex was the first codex that was produced. So all Quranic manuscripts today, extant today, go back to at least four Uthmani codices, with the exception of C1. But the Uthmani textual tradition and the C1 textual tradition have a common ancestor, the prophetic archetype. The problem with C1, we'll see, however, was that it contained a few scribal errors, various spelling conventions, and readings which were not widely recited among the Sahaba in Medina. But again, we'll get to that, uh, inshallah. But, but let's look a little a bit closer. Um, I said that there were four reasons for differences in the companion codices. So number one, we said various orthographies. The companion spelled words in different ways. Uh, this is completely uncontroversial. Uh, let's focus on number two, though. Number two is variance in the rasam due to the ahruf. Okay. okay, so let me give you an example of this, and then we'll circle back to numbers three and four, scribal errors. And, and exegetical notes. Um, so the top of this slide says skeletal, that is rasmi, variance in the textual tradition of Ibn Mas'ud versus the textual tradition of Uthman. Now, we don't have the mushaf of Ibn Mas'ud, right? It's not extant, okay? The only potential, potential companion codices uh, that we have are C1 and the Birmingham manuscript. I mean, we have no external evidence of Ibn Mas'ud's Mus'haf, his codex. Okay, C1 is definitely not his codex. Now I should mention, some contemporary Muslim scholars have argued that there never was a Mus'haf of, of Ibn Mas'ud. Okay, this is an opinion. M.M. al-Adami, he explains this argument in, his, uh, in chapter 13 of his book, The History of the Quranic Text. Chapter 13 is called The So-Called Mus'haf of Ibn Mas'ud and Alleged Variances Therein. Uh, uh, personally, I'm not convinced by this argument. I think it's an interesting argument uh, when you engage it, but um, it, it's not very compelling in my opinion. I think Ibn Mas'ud definitely did have a mushaf. What happened to his mushaf, his codex? Was it recalled by Uthman uh, and destroyed? Uh, probably not. Uh, one of the students of Imam al-Kisa'i in Kufa named Yahya al-Farah, 
Uh, he said that he actually saw a copy of the Codex of Ibn Mas'ud at the end of the second century Hijri. Okay, so we have eyewitness testimony of its existence way after Uthman. Uh, was this a fake, a fabrication? Was it original? Was it a copy? Allahu alam, God knows. Um, according to Ibn Abi Dawood, Uthman did decree that all uh, personal fragments of the Quran that differed from the Uthmani Mus'haf be destroyed. Uh, but Ibn Hajar mentions that, that it was possible that people erased the ink rather than destroyed or burned their manuscripts. And of course, the lower text of C1 was erased. So it's very important that we study C1. We'll look at that. However, Ibn Mas'ud's codex apparently survived well into the 8th century. Nonetheless, it is reported that in the textual tradition of Ibn Mas'ud, Ibn Mas'ud read Surah 101 like this. So far, so good. And then verse 5. So what does the Uthmani textual tradition say? So Ibn Mas'ud says, the mountains will be like carded suf. Uthman says, the mountains will be like carded ihn. What can account for this difference? Well, there are three possible reasons. Number one, this was an example of synonymic variation, one of the seven ahruf. In other words, at times, in order to facilitate comprehension and retention for various Arab tribes, the prophet would recite verses in various ways. And sometimes a word with a similar meaning would be used for another word because the latter was not known or not popular among a given tribe. So suf and ihin are synonymous. They both mean wool. Right? It doesn't make a difference at all which word is used in the context of this verse. Uh, so the prophet recited it both ways. This was a function of the ahruf. At times, the prophet's readings had this type of recitational latitude for the sake of taysir al-fahm, for the sake of facilitating understanding among Arabs. Now, another possibility that I intimated earlier, that this was simply an error, that Ibn Mas'ud wrote down the wrong word. He misremembered it. Uh, a third possibility is that the word suf, uh, is that he wrote the word suf somewhere in his codex, maybe above or below the verse, as a tafsiri note, an exegetical note. In other words, to sort of remind himself that irhin means suf, maybe because he wasn't familiar with the word irhin. And so he wrote down a synonym. But then later, some of his students maybe thought that he was correcting the mushaf or that he was saying that either one could be recited as a function of the ahruf, uh, Abu Bakr al-Bakilani, he said that companions at times would write tafsiri notes in their masahif. Uh, Ibn al-Jazari said that they would do this, idahan wa bayanan, meaning as a way of sort of clarifying the meanings for themselves. So these were their personal codices. Okay, and so they would write their personal notes uh, in their personal codices. Um, so, so, these, so these notes uh, in, the, in the companion codices were really the very first form of tafsir, of Quranic exegesis. In Islam, and what's interesting is when we look at the uh, um, the uh, C1, when we look at the Sana Palimpsest, we notice that whoever wrote um, whoever wrote this, possibly a companion of the Prophet, right before Surah number nine, there's a note that says "La taqul Bismillah." Don't say Bismillah because it's not the Sunnah in the Qur'an to recite Bismillah before. So this is definitely a the companion making a personal note to himself, reminding himself of something. Um, but, but for the sake of argument, let's go with the first possibility, okay? Let's say that Ibn Mas'ud, okay, recited it as suf because this is what he heard the prophet recite. 
<clears throat> okay, fine. And there are reports that Ibn Mas'ud refused to submit his Mus'haf because he said that uh, he learned his readings directly from the Prophet. Fine. Now, even though Ibn Mas'ud's textual tradition was popular in Iraq, okay, um, it is very likely that there were several companions in Medina who learned the Quran from him. He was a great teacher of the Quran. So it is very likely that there were companions in Medina who recited Surah 5, sorry, verse 5 of Surah 101 as Kasufil Manfush. So, so why does the Uthmani textual tradition say Ihin and not Suf? This is very simple. The latter reading with Suf was just not widely attested in Medina at the time of the Codex Committee. Okay, Suf was revealed to the Prophet. Okay, but for the sake of stabilizing the text, <clears throat> it was abandoned by the Codex Committee. Now you might say, how can they abandon something from the Quran? That's a good question. How is this not tahrifun uh, nas? How is this not textual corruption? How is this not nas? How is this not abrogation? Well, let's start with the latter. With respect to nas, okay, abrogation. No one other than the prophet, with God's leave, can abrogate something, okay? Perhaps Suf was abrogated by the prophet during his final mu'arada with Jibril, his final review with Gabriel. And Zayd in the committee knew this. Uh, so Ihin reflects the, the prophet's final recension with Gabriel. Uh, but again, let's say for the sake of argument that it was not abrogated, that both readings were valid. How can the Codex Committee abandon the Suf reading? Again, this is very simple. The Ahruf were a form of Ruhsa. Ruhsa means concession, alleviation, or special permission. The Quran was revealed in seven Ahruf to make understanding easier, and a Ruhsa by rule may be abandoned. For example, if you travel during Ramadan, you do not have to fast. You can take that Ruhsa and not fast, or not take it and fast, it's your choice. So the Codex Committee made the choice to stabilize the Rasam upon one harf when it came to this verse, rather than to have one Uthmani Codex say Suf and another Uthmani Codex say Ihin, <clears throat> because this would have potentially led to the, to the very type of unrest in the provinces that the, uh, the Codex Committee was specifically formed to quell, okay? Now, so, so this was not Nasr. Okay, <clears throat> this was not abrogation of the Quran. This was abandoning a concession. Neither was this tahrif, textual corruption. So tahrif would have been to change a word to another word that was not found in any companion codex or manuscript and not recited by any known companion. Uh, for example, if the committee wrote what the kunu jibaru kan wabril manfush, wabar, like wabar means uh, wool in Arabic. I don't know if it's, uh, if it's modern or classical Arabic. Um, but it's just, just an example of a word that is, that is totally unattested, right? So, so this would have been tahrif. This would have been textual corruption. If the Codex Committee, if the Codex Committee had decided to fabricate or corrupt the Quran, okay, this would have been, they would have been confronted by thousands of other Sahaba who would have made life, let's just say, very, very difficult for the committee, Okay. Well, somebody might say, well, Uthman was assassinated. Okay. Yes, he was six years later. And that had absolutely nothing to do with his standardization of the Quran. He was killed by foreign rebels who accused him of nepotism. It was all political.
Okay. I mean, is Ibn Mas'ud's Suf or Wadhakiri wal Untha, etc., is this really the hill that Christian polemicists want to die on? Right? Suf or Ihin, really? I mean, it's it's desperation, I know. When we look in the New Testament, you know, and Christians don't believe in Ahruf, right? We see variants that have major theological implications, like John 1.18, right? Is Jesus the only begotten son? Is he monogenes huyas, or is he the only begotten God, the monogenes theos? Now, that is a variant reading for you, okay? Which one is authentic? Well, <clears throat> let's look at the first century manuscripts of the Gospel of John. We have zero, okay? The oldest are P66 and P75, both late 2nd century, and they both say only begotten God. This is the older and the more difficult reading, so it's most likely the most authentic. So scribes in the later centuries, they changed it to son because the author of John's gospel clearly believed that Jesus was a second God, right? Like Origen called Christ, the Logos, a deuteros theos, a second God, Justin Martyr, the father of Logos theology, uh, he called the Logos alas theos, another God. The, the Johannine Jesus admits that he himself has a God. He's called God and he has a God. That's two gods. Uh, John was highly influenced by, by middle platonic metaphysics. Uh, he explicitly called Christ the Logos and the only begotten God. And so later scribes wanted to soften his explicit polytheism and so they changed only begotten, only begotten God to only begotten Son. So that is a very problematic uh, variant reading uh, that has no similitude in the Quran, even though Christian polemicists want to sort of equalize, we have this and you have it. No, it, it's, it's worlds apart. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this is where the Christian polemicists will come in with a hadith. They love this hadith, right? It's going to backfire on them, though. So there's a hadith in Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ, he said, so the Prophet said, take the Qur'an from four men, from Ibn Mas'ud and Salim and Mu'adh and Ubay ibn Ka'b. Okay, so, so first thing here, the Prophet didn't say only these four men. The Prophet mentioned these four because they were the most eminent teachers of the Qur'an in, in his day. Uh, but here the Christian polemicist says, aha! The Prophet said, take the Qur'an from Ibn Mas'ud, yet the Codex Committee abandoned many of his readings. Gotcha, right? So this is just um, an, an, an asinine, uh, you know, <laughs> that is to say a brainless argument. So, so let's think about this. When the Prophet made this statement, what did the companions do? Did they ignore him? No, they obviously listened to him and learned the Qur'an, their Qur'an from Ibn Mas'ud. Not all of them, some went to Ubay, some went to Mu'adh, etc. The companions who learned from Ibn Mas'ud probably wrote down what they learned. So when Zayd asked the generality of the companions to bring their manuscripts to the masjid uh, during the standardization process, uh, those manuscripts were present. And I already said that the Uthmani textual tradition was a critical addition that assimilated the strongest readings from the existing companion textual traditions. In other words, much of the textual tradition of Ibn Mas'ud was incorporated into the Uthmani textual tradition. So the Codex Committee did take from Ibn Mas'ud and Ibn Ka'ab and Salim and Mu'adh and others. The Codex Committee was in total conformity with this hadith 
This hadith absolutely works against the Christian polemicist. Now, C1, that we'll talk about later, I keep talking, I keep mentioning C1, uh, this, the son of Palimpsest, was also a companion codex, according to Behnam Sadiqi, and, and I agree with him. And although C1 is not the Mus'haf of Ibn Mas'ud, in C1, we see exactly the same types of differences that are described as occurring in the Mus'haf of Ibn Mas'ud. And, and this is how Dr. Sidqi describes C1. He says, quote, by and large, it is the same Quran we have in the Uthmanic text type, end quote. Therefore, logic tells us that, uh, that this must also be true of the Mus'haf of Ibn Mas'ud, that by and large, it is the same as the Uthmanic textual tradition. The Uthmanic textual tradition drew upon, okay, the textual tradition of Ibn Mas'ud and others. This is exactly what the Prophet said to do, and this is exactly what the Codex Committee did. Now, some Orientalists and many uh, Christian polemicists uh, claim that since there are reports that Ibn Mas'ud's codex did not contain al-Fatiha, uh, that Ibn Mas'ud did not consider al-Fatiha to be part of the Qur'an. Uh, like I said earlier, this goes beyond ridiculous. I think we've entered into the realm of ludicrous. Um, if this report about his codex is accurate, <clears throat> it's obvious that Ibn Mas'ud did not write al-Fatiha in his codex because al-Fatiha was so ubiquitous. There was no need to write it down. In fact, the Abbasid scholar Abu Bakr al Bari um, is, uh, is quoted by Imam al-Qurtubi, so the great exegete Imam al-Qurtubi uh, in his al-Jami'i li ahkam al-Qur'an. Uh, according to uh, uh, al-Anbari, Ibn Mas'ud was asked point blank why he did not write al-Fatiha in his Mus'haf. And Ibn Mas'ud responded, If I had written it, I would have written it before every surah. Right? This is how Muslims pray. We recite al-Fatiha, and then another surah. So Al-Anbari goes on to say that Ibn Mas'ud did not write it because there was no need. All of the Muslims had it memorized, so he left it off for the sake of brevity. So the argument of the polemicist here is a non sequitur. You know, Ibn Mas'ud did not write down a surah in his mushaf, therefore he denied that it was revelation. No, at this early time, and you mentioned this earlier, at this early time, orality took precedence over writing. Okay, and here's a quote from Dr. Nazir Khan, who wrote a fantastic essay, by the way, entitled The Origins of the Variant Readings of the Quran. He says the reality is that the Sahaba, um, is that the Sahaba used their writings of the Quran as memory aids for personal worship and recitation, and consequently never intended them as complete official copies of the Quran. <clears throat> now, Imam Suyuti, he quoted Imam al Tabri, who, who quoted the verse in the Quran. So there's a verse in the Quran, 1587, that says, that we have given you, O Prophet, the seven oft-repeated ones <clears throat> and the great Quran. And Imam al said about the seven oft-repeated ones. Like, what does that mean, the seven oft-repeated ones? He says in his tafsir, قَالَ إِبْنْ مَسْعُودٌ So, he said that Ibn Mas'ud said about this portion of this verse, the seven oft-repeated ones, that this is a reference to the Fatiha, <clears throat> and that the great Qur'an was a reference to the remainder of the Qur'an. Okay, so, uh, but a critic here might say, well, those traditions could have been fabricated uh, to mitigate the controversy. They, they just seem so convenient. Okay, but again, this is not a historical argument. It's an argument 
argument that a Christian apologist uh, um, will use because he's forced to, because these traditions are devastating uh, to his case. Uh, but fine, let's forget about these statements of Ibn Mas'ud. Let's use logic and common sense. If Ibn Mas'ud did not consider Al-Fatiha to be part of the Quran, how did he pray? You know, how did his students in Kufa pray? His eminent students like Al-Qama ibn Qais or Zir ibn Hubaysh, how did their students pray? Ibrahim al-Nakha'i and Asim, how did, how did their students pray? Abu Hanifa and his students, uh, Muhammad al-Shaybani and Qadi Abu Yusuf. If, if Ibn Mas'ud did not believe in al-Fatiha, this causes a cascade of unsolved problems. Uh, in Bukhari, we're told that Ibn Mas'ud's student, Al-Qama, traveled to Syria and met with the other companion, Abu Darda, and they talked about the textual tradition of Ibn Mas'ud. Did Al-Qama dispute with Abu Darda about, and, his, and his hundreds of students about the Quranic status of Al-Fatiha? No, he didn't. Because if he did, you better believe we would have heard about that. It would have made major headlines. Okay. Um, why didn't Ibn Mas'ud's students in Kufa uh, clash over the Fatiha uh, with the students of Abdurrahman al-Sulami when the latter brought the Codex uh, sorry, Textus Receptus, as Arthur Jeffrey called it, the Uthmani Codex into Kufa. Uh, you know, why didn't they make takfir upon Ibn Mas'ud? Uh, that is, uh, anathematize him and his students for denying a surah of the Quran and have them brought up on charges of blasphemy and thrown in jail and, pu and punished. Um, now, Arthur Jeffrey points out that, uh, that Ibn Abi Dawood mentions in Kitab al-Musahif uh, that it was reported that Ibn Mas'ud used to recite al-Fatiha as Arshidna, Arshidna Siratul Mustaqi, instead of Ihdina Siratul Mustaqi. And, you know, other critics are quick to point this out as well. I mean, look how transparent our scholars were. They mentioned all these things. There was nothing to hide. But here's the problem for the critics. They can't have it both ways, right? So if their claim is that Ibn Mas'ud rejected the Fatiha, uh, they cannot say now out of the other side of their mouths that he, you know, he recited it, but he recited it as Arshidna Siratul Mustaqim. Well, which is it, right? And I've already mentioned that it is beyond obvious that Ibn Mas'ud considered Al-Fatiha to be a surah of the Quran. So what about this business of Arshidna? Was this an authentic variant reading like Malik or Malik? Could it have been revealed to the Prophet in this way? In addition to Ihdina Siratul Mustaqim as a function of the Ahruf? And the answer is yes, it's possible, although highly improbable, or perhaps Ibn Mas'ud meant this to be an explanatory note, a tafsiri note for himself, that, that hidayah in this verse means irshad, right? They're somewhat synonymous. Maybe that's also possible, but it's anomalous. It's, it's isolated. It has no solid basis. We have no ex external manuscript evidence of this. And our qira'at come from mass transmitted living traditions, not from isolated and spurious reports, not from remote possibilities, right? So the bottom line is no one denied uh, al-Fatiha. That is just ridiculous. <clears throat> now, the other thing that they bring up, okay, to create another shubha, right, another doubt or suspicion, is the report that states that Ibn Mas'ud, uh, Ibn Mas'ud's mushaf lacked the last two surahs of the Quran, right? So surah 113, and 114 called Al-Mu'awwadatayn. Yeah, so Yuti mentions this. And therefore, here comes their wild non-secretary conclusion again. And therefore, Ibn Mas'ud rejected these two surahs as being the Quran. Right? And, and again, they, they cite some isolated reports that Ibn Mas'ud erased these surahs.
rust from his codex. So my response here has four parts, okay? Number one, we have already established that for Ibn Mas'ud, if something was not written in his Mus'haf, it did not mean that he rejected it as being the Quran. Perhaps he only wrote it in his, perhaps he only wrote in his Mus'haf what he heard the prophet recite in prayer. So he didn't hear surahs 113 and 114 in prayer, but he certainly did not reject them as being the Quran. The Fatiha was an exception because of its ubiquity. Number two, again, our reading traditions come from mass transmission, not from isolated reports. Uh, number three, according to Imam uh, Shamsuddin al-Jazari in his book, Kitab al-Nashr, Fi Qara'at al-Ashr, four out of the 10 mass transmitted reading traditions, and we'll talk about these reading traditions, four, of, uh, four out of the 10, so Asim, Hamza, Al-Kisai, and Khalaf, all in Iraq, can be traced to the Prophet through Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and all recite Surahs 113 and 114. And number four, even if this were true, okay, let's say, let's entertain this argument again. Okay, for argument's sake, let's say this is true, Ibn Mas'ud erased these two surahs from his Mus'haf because he didn't believe them to be the Qur'an. Okay, it is clear from all of his students and their students that he eventually did come to believe in their Qur'anic status. And this is a point that Ibn Hajar made. It's very clear. So even if the statement is true, it's obvious that he changed his mind. So this is yet another red herring that these polemicists want us to chase. Uh, this, is, this is them making sort of a mountain uh, out of a molehill. Um, Moving on here. Yeah, just can I just um, my own uh, thought? I mean, obviously not a scholar or anything, but I've got my copy here of the Holy Bible. This is kind of an analogy, um, and th this is a very worn copy. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's brown because I, and uh, obviously it starts in Genesis. It's the Christian Bible, and it ends in the Book of Revelation, doesn't it? That's what the Bible should be. But in my copy, um, there's some missing books, and actually the last page is Hebrews. Hebrews chapter three. Now, does this mean that the Holy Bible doesn't contain the book of Revelation or the letter of James or one, two and three John? Because it's not in my copy, which is extremely well <laughs> worn away and thumbed. No, because because it is worn away by use. And so I had to replace it with this one, which is the full copy, including the book of Revelation, which is missing for my codex for my musha, for my uh, Christian Bible. Yeah. That, that, I'm not saying that's a serious academic uh, alternative, but it just goes to show that things can get worn away through a lot of use. It doesn't mean the books were never there or they're denied their canonical status or they're not inspired. It's just this particular yeah. um, uh, book that I have has been worn away through constant use. That's it. No, that's a good point. And, and of course, uh, Surah 113 and 114 are the last two surahs that, the Quran. That's, that's the point. They're the last two. Yeah. The book of Revelation is the last in the Bible, right. but it's missing exactly. my codex. Does that, what does yeah. that prove? Does it prove <laughs> it was never there in the first place? Not really. Yeah. It got worn yeah. away through use. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. Now, now let's move to the Mus'haf of another companion. So Ubay ibn Ka'b, radiallahu anhu. Okay. And the polemicists also, they really love this Mus'haf. Um, Okay, so again, we don't have the Mus'haf uh, of, of Ibn Ka'b. It's not extant. C1 is not the Mus'haf of Ibn Ka'b. But although C1 more closely resembles Ibn Ka'b than it does Ibn Mas'ud. So what's the big deal about this Mus'haf, right? Well, there are reports, reports that the Mus'haf of Ibn Ka'b contained two additional surahs that did not make it into the Uthmani Codex. Gasp. Uh, so Yuti in the Itqan, uh, he mentions this as well and references this to Kitab al-Mu'ad. Uh, 
Sahif uh, al-Adami mentions in his book, The History of the Quranic Text, that this was first mentioned by Hamad ibn Salama, who actually died 167 Hijrah, and that there's a major gap in the isnad of this report of at least two or three generations. So Adami calls this report defective and spurious. Nonetheless, let's look at these so-called surahs. The first so-called surah is called um, Surah Al-Khala. Okay, and, and, and here it is. I'll read the entire surah, so-called surah. Allahumma inna nasta'inuka wa nasta'firuka wa nu'unu bika wa natawakalu alayka wa nudhi alayka al-khayra wa nashkuruka wa la nakfuruk wa nakhla'u wa naturuku ma yafjuruk. Okay, so, O oh Allah, we invoke you for help and beg for forgiveness and we believe in you and have trust in you and we praise you in the best way we can and we thank you and we are not ungrateful to you. And we forsake and turn away from the one who disobeys you. That's it. This is supposed to be a surah. Uh, I'm not sure how many verses it is. The second so-called surah is called Surah Al-Haft. And here it is. Allahumma iyaka na'budu wa laka nusalli wa nasjudu wa ilayka nas'a wa nahfidu wa narju rahmatak wa nakhsha adabak inna adabaka bil kufari mulhaq. So, oh Allah, we worship you and prostrate ourselves before you and we hasten towards you and serve you. And we hope uh, to receive your mercy. Uh, and we... Dread your torment, surely the uh, disbelievers shall incur your torment. Okay. Um, now, let's let go back here. Yes. So now Muslims who are listening to this right now, especially the Hanafis, have probably immediately recognized what I just read as something called Dua al-Qunut. Okay. This is also called al-Qunut al-Hanafiyah. Yeah, this is a very popular prophetic invocation. Okay. It is recorded... In, in numerous uh, hadith that the Prophet would often recite this supplication, Dua al-Qunut, during the audible prayers. I'll cite a few here. So Sunan ibn Majah, number 1182, created a sound on the authority of Ubay ibn Ka'b, right? The same, the same Ubay ibn Ka'b who wrote the codex in question. The messenger of God used to pray witr and recite al-Qunut before bowing. Uh, Sunan and uh, and Nasai also created a sound on the authority of Ubay ibn Ka'b. The Messenger of God used to pray three cycles during Salat al-Witr, and he would recite in the first Surah 87, in the second Surah 109, in the third Surah 112, and then Al-Qunut before bowing. At Tirmidhi, number 401, from Bara ibn Azib, the Prophet وسلم, used to recite Al-Qunut in the morning and sunset prayers. So this was something the Sahaba heard the Prophet say in prayer. Now, Dr. Sean Anthony, uh, who, who is not hostile, he's not a polemicist, uh, he's written on this topic of the alleged lost two surahs, okay? And this is what he concludes. This is a quote from Anthony. A horde of evidence strongly indicates that not merely Ubay ibn Ka'b, but also other companions regarded the surahs, he means these two surahs, as part of the Quran, and therefore part of the prophetic revelation given to Muhammad, end quote. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with him here. I think it's certainly understandable why some companions could have thought that these were surahs, right? The prophet used to recite them in prayer, okay? Now, this is no doubt why Ubay ibn Ka'b and maybe others wrote these supplications down in their masahif because the prophet would recite them in prayer. But then Anthony also says that these two surahs, quote, for whatever reason, came to be excluded from the canon by the process of Uthman's collection and textual canonization of the prophetic revelation. For, what, for whatever reason, really? I think the reason is more than obvious. So these, these so-called surahs were not deemed genuine surahs by the Codex Committee because the vast majority of the companions always 
always knew them to be special supplications uh, that the prophet would recite in prayer nonetheless, but not as Quranic surahs, that the companions who did regard them as surahs were simply wrong. They were under a misapprehension. Again, the Uthmani textual tradition was the most widely recited rendition of the prophetic archetype because it was culled from the most widely attested readings of the companions. Why else would the committee exclude them? Why else? Why? And Anthony doesn't give an, doesn't give an answer. Do they contain some aberrant or blasphemous teachings? No. Do they contain uh, you know, embarrassing grammatical errors? No. Do their meanings contradict the rest of the Quran in some way? No. Now, now this is enough, but for what it's worth, let's look at the internal evidence of these so-called surahs. Now, Dr. Van Putin contends that these uh, supplications sound like the Quran, right? So he, can, he concludes, yes, they are surahs of the Quran. Uh, I disagree with him. I actually don't think that they sound like the Quran. Uh, I think the style and diction of these so-called surahs contravene the Quranic idiom. Uh, the reason is because uh, they are the words of the prophet. So what I mean is they are in correct Arabic and the meanings are sound. They agree with the theology and message of the Quran, but stylistically, they are not Quranic. And Anthony mentions this as well, although ultimately he's not persuaded by it. Uh, Van Putin's opinion about these surahs is actually at odds with Noldike and Shuali. So Noldike and Shuali were the two main authors of the seminal uh, um, history of the Quran in German. Uh, Noldike and Shuali reje actually rejected these supplications as being genuinely Quranic on literary and stylistic grounds. I'll just give you two pieces of evidence. So number one, the, the, the vocative Allahumma, meaning, O oh God, never appears in the Quran as the first word of any verse, as it does in these two so-called surahs. In every occurrence in the Quran, you can look in a concordance, Allahumma is preceded by either qul qala or something equivalent, like da'wahum fiha subhanaka Allahumma. Their cry therein will be, in other words, God is quoting the people of paradise, right? This is equivalent to saying qalu subhanaka Allahumma. Okay, so that's one. And then and number two, and even Anthony calls this, this one compelling evidence. In Surah Al-Khala, this so-called surah, it says, Wala nakfuruka, right? We don't disbelieve in you with a second person masculine singular pronominal suffix as a direct object. However, in the idiom of the Quran, we should have expected to see nakfurubika. Okay, the Quran always uses the preposition be before the object of the verb kafara yakfuru. Okay, in other words, this verb always takes an indirect object. Like, like I have some examples here. Uh, right? I mean, there are hundreds of examples like this every single time. Uh, so no, this is dua al-qunut. It is the inspired speech of the prophet. It is not the verbatim, talaqi, revealed speech of God. If Sean Anthony's contention is correct, and some of the companions believed these words to be Quranic suar, then the Codex Committee corrected their misunderstanding. It, it, it's very simple. You know, it's ironic, you know, when, when Christian polemicists bring up this issue of the so-called missing surahs, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says something very interesting. He says, when I, I mean, most of what Paul says is, is interesting. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who, who indulge in sexual sin. When I wrote to you before. So Paul wrote an 
epistle to Corinth before he wrote 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. In other words, the New Testament is missing an entire book. Perhaps Paul in real 1 Corinthians said explicitly that Christ was an angel or that James was his mortal enemy. I mean, we'll never know unless it's found. But then will Christians be willing to amend their canon and include it? I mean, if it's from Paul, it, it must have been inspired, right? Um, anyway, moving on here. Now, now before we talk about before we talk about the sun palimpsest, I want to say a few things here. Um, I'm going to get a bit sort of psychological uh, on you. Now, I, I personally believe that many of these um, Christian apologists and polemicists who attack the Quran, much of their vitriol, I think, is due to the fact that they, somewhere in the back of their minds, they recognize the strength and accuracy of our narrative when it comes to the Quran. And so they're filled with envy and frustration because their narrative has been utterly deconstructed by secular academics and historians. And the Quran even intimates this, right? The Quran says that um, many of the people of the book, they wish to turn you away from faith out of envy. Uh, they wish to turn you away from the truth and make you unbelievers out of envy because the truth has been manifested uh, to them. So, so this is called a guilt complex, right? So they vainly accuse our narrative of falsehood and attack our scripture because they know that their own narrative and scripture is an utter shambles. So the Christian polemicist attitude toward the Muslim is, well, if my book is going down in flames, I'm taking your book down uh, with it. Uh, you see, they want us to sort of commiserate with them. And this is why many Christian polemicists are probing into the history of the pre-Uthmanic Quran. This is their obsession. What did the Quran look like before Uthman? Uh, in other words, what happened between the passing of the Prophet uh, and the standardization of the Quran by the Codex Committee of Uthman? Anhu. This is the key period, 632 to 650. Now, if you ask any Christian at random, where does Jesus, peace be upon him, claim to be divine in the New Testament? Uh, invariably, they will quote the Gospel of John, right? Not really Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which all predated John. They'll quote John 3.16 and John 8.58 and John 10.30 and John 14.6. The author of the Gospel of John, as I said, explicitly refers to Christ as Theos, a divine being or a God in John 1.3 and John 1.18. Thomas refers to Jesus as uh, my God, Hathaos Mu, in, in John 20, uh, 28. Of course, the, uh, the Gospel of John became the most theologically influential book in the entire New Testament. Traditionally, Christians attributed the, the authorship of the Gospel of John to John, the son of Zebedee, a disciple of Jesus. However, as I said, most secular and confessional historians today say that the Gospel of John was written around 90, possibly later, as I mentioned. And so to maintain apostolic authorship of John is just becoming untenable. Uh, that means a simple Jewish fisherman uh, from the Galilee uh, who saw Jesus and heard Jesus's Aramaic teachings waited until he was <clears throat> 90 years old to write his gospel. And when he did, he wrote it in a foreign language. And here's the historical question that has effectively devastated Christianity, I think. And I want people to listen carefully. What did Christians believe about Jesus before the gospel of John? Now, I believe that Paul, writing in the 50s, believed that Jesus was a God, not the God, but a God. Uh, for Paul, Christ was <clears throat> the divine son of God who died for our sins. 
I also believe that the synoptics present Jesus as being a God. However, this is very much open to debate. One could make a pretty good argument that Paul and the synoptics did not believe that Jesus Christ was divine in any way. The Unitarians uh, make an argument along those lines. However, in John, I think it's very clear that Jesus is a divine being uh, of some sort. He's called Theos explicitly. I think that Johann and Jesus himself is claiming some sort of divine status. <clears throat> uh, not only this, by referring to Jesus by the loaded term Logos, who was in the beginning with God, John has explicitly tapped into this type of Hellenistic metaphysics, uh, and, and this would eventually crystallize into the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity in the early 4th century. So if not for the Gospel of John, would we have the Christian Trinity? It's debatable. But I think that everyone would agree that the Gospel of John was a highly, highly theologically influential document in the Christian world when it became popular, okay? It was a game changer. Yet today, most historians tell us that none of the so-called divine claims of the Johannine Jesus should be trusted as being traceable to the historical Jesus, right? These statements of the Johannine Jesus, they're not early, they're not multiply attested, they're not socially and theologically coherent. Also, if the historical Jesus truly made these pronouncements, the I am statements, there is no good reason why the synoptics, uh, the synoptic authors did not record them. Uh, so now the Christian polemicist, right, battered and broken, as it were, wants desperately to say that the Uthmani Codex, like the Gospel of John, was also a highly theologically influential document when compared to the textual traditions that preceded it. That the Uthmani Codex, like John compared to the Synoptics, was markedly different in its content and style when compared to the companion codices that preceded it. That's the guild complex, right? Now, let's look at the difference here, okay? Let's look at the difference. So what is the Uthmani textual tradition? Let's break it down a little bit more. It is a collection of the dominant readings of the Quran by the Sahaba, the companions, in Medina in 650. When Uthman commissioned uh, Zaid as director of the uh, Codex Committee, Zaid commanded that all Sahaba who had any personal Quranic manuscripts, right, companion codices, in their homes to bring them to the mosque. Now, we know, again, that the, that the Prophet had appointed scribes to write down the Quran, Qutab al-Wahi. According to Muslim sources, uh, for every portion of the Quran presented, Zayd demanded two witnesses. What does two witnesses mean? So Ibn Hajr says, Al-Murad annahuma yashhadani ala an dhalika al-maktub kataba bayni yadayi rasulillah. He says, two witnesses who testify that the verse, or literally that, which, literally that which was written, was written verbatim in the presence of the Prophet. In other words, two men who saw it written in the presence of the Prophet. So Al-Azami -Al clarifies, two men who saw it written under the Prophet's supervision, two of the official scribes, really. And this was based upon the verse in the Quran that states that whenever we enter into a contract, uh, let two witnesses from your men uh, uh, bear witness, right? Um, um, these men must witness the actual writing of the contract, okay? So, so we can imagine that there were many, many manuscripts submitted by different companions that contain the same verses, right? So a lot of duplicates. We can also imagine that due to the Quran being revealed in seven Ahruf, that there were some variations of the same verses in the manuscripts of different companions. Two witnesses does not mean that only two men were reciting those verses. 
or that only two men remember hearing the prophet recite those verses. No, it meant that two men distinctly remember when those verses were ordered by the prophet himself to be transcribed officially. Those verses could have been recited by thousands of companions, hundreds of whom heard the prophet himself recite them. Now, what did Uthman, why did Uthman choose Zayd ibn Thabit to head the committee? The answer is, so in addition to being the prophet's close companion, as well as his neighbor, Zayd was also the chief scribe of the prophet. He was also a hafiz of the Quran. Nobody from the companions knew the, the Quran better than Zayd ibn Thabit. Okay, all of the men serving on the Codex Committee were hafad. They had memorized the Quran. They were Quran masters. Whenever a manuscript was witnessed for by two men, the committee then checked it against other manuscripts and then against their memories and the memories of the well-known hafad of the Quran. And those readings that were deemed to be the most widely recited among the hafad, the Quran masters among the companions, as well as among the generality of the other companions, those readings were officially transcribed in the Master Uthmani Codex. So written and recited materials were collated against each other to determine the most dominant readings. Now, why did Zayd do all of this? Why the two witnesses? Why not just write down what the committee was reciting? Why look at the manuscripts? Well, the answer is Zayd and the committee wanted to reconcile the written Quran with the recited Quran. He wanted to make doubly sure that nothing was left unaccounted for. Perhaps there were, uh, perhaps there were verses written down that were not being recited. If so, why? Perhaps there were verses being recited that were, that were not written down. If so, why? He wanted to ensure total agreement and accuracy. So Zaid, he said, I gathered the Quran from various manuscripts and from the chests of men. Right? So let's say, for instance, that a manuscript or two was presented that contained the Dua al-Qunut, right? the, the two so-called surahs that were found in the Mus'haf of Ubay ibn Ka'b. Why were these verses not transcribed in the Master Codex by the committee? Were they somehow theologically offensive? No, we covered that. Perhaps these verses lacked a single witness among the scribes. In other words, they could not verify that the Prophet himself considered these verses to be the Qur'an. Perhaps these verses were not widely recited as being surahs of the Qur'an. In the end, the committee deemed that these verses constituted a prophetic supplication not Quranic ayat, and that the companions who considered them to be surahs were simply wrong. The committee did their due diligence, okay? They could not have done a better job. Now, according to Muslim sources, the last two verses of Surah At-Tawbah, Surah At-Tawbah, okay, had only one witness. His name was uh, Abu Khuzayma al-Ansari. Again, this, this did not mean, this does not mean that only one man was reciting these verses, or that only one man heard the Prophet recite these verses. It meant that one man remembered when these verses were transcribed by order of the prophet. Now, Zaid and the committee, they went ahead and wrote down these verses in the Master Codex, despite having only one witness, precisely because these verses were so widely recited. Among many, many Sahaba, there was really no doubt about them. Okay, so the rule of two was important. The rule of two witnesses, it was important to the committee, but it was still secondary to what the committee regarded as being widely recited or mass transmitted in recitation. Okay, For the companions, the earliest Muslims, the written word was important, but it took a back seat to what was widespread in recitation. The companions prior to the committee did not consider 
their personal manuscripts to be official and complete codices. That's very, very important. Okay, now, many modern uh, anti-Quran polemicists, they enjoy raising doubts and suspicions, even the shubuhat, about the actions of the Codex Committee under Uthman, right? Their claim is basically that the Uthmani textual tradition, right, the Quran we recite today, is not what the Prophet used to recite, uh, that the Uthmani text is somehow incorrect or corrupted, and they will appeal to two things to support their position. Okay, number one, they will appeal to the radical claims of some extreme elements of the leaders of the Rafida, right, the Shia, who claim that Uthman's committee corrupted the Quran. That's number one. Number two, they will appeal to the fact that many of the readings of the Quran recorded in the various companion codices differed from the standard Uthmani codex. Okay, so let's look at the the first so-called piece of evidence. Now, it is true that there have been a few Shiite scholars who claimed that Uthman's committee manipulated uh, at least a couple of verses in the Quran that praised the Ahlul Bayt, the Prophet's family. <clears throat> in other words, the committee uh, did what the Quran says uh, that certain Jews did with, with the Hebrew Bible, right? Yuharifun al-kalima which literally means they, they shifted words from their proper contexts. They decontextualized the text, which is a form of textual corruption. Um, the Shiites identify these verses as ayatul, uh, ayatul ghadir, they say, and ayatul tathir, which appear in, verses, in, in surahs 5 and 33 of the Uthmani Quran, respectively. Their claim is that there are statements in these verses which really belong in other surahs, right? And that by placing them in, their, in these present surahs, Surah 5 and 33, the Uthmani committee altered their true meanings and their true uh, context. Now, when these anti-Muslim atheists and Christian polemicists, um, whoops, uh, sorry about that. When, when they hear stuff like this, right, um, they jump all over it, right? It's, it's music to their ears. You see, they say, even other Muslims are saying that the Uthmani Codex is corrupted and unreliable. Uh, you know, Wandsburg pointed out that the Muslims went from an interfaith accusation of scriptural alteration to an intrafaith accusation of scriptural alteration. So here, here's my twofold uh, response uh, to this. Number one, the vast majority of Shia scholars do not make this claim, okay? This claim actually clashes with clear-cut texts within the Quran, right? That verily we sent down this reminder, the Quran, and verily we are its guardians. I mean, one would have to interpret this verse in very strange and highly cryptic ways in order to maintain one's claim that the Quran has been corrupted, right? Based upon the clear, plain, and apparent meaning of this verse, the Quran is preserved, and to say otherwise is zandaka, is heresy, clearly. Uh, so, so this is a, a fringe opinion among a few Shiite exegetes that the overwhelming majority do not endorse. Okay, number two, historically and logically, uh, this claim uh, totally implodes into, a, into an oblivion. Now, let me show you uh, how. So let's think about this again. If, if the Codex Committee of Uthman manipulated or changed or corrupted verses uh, of the Quran that praised Ahl bayt then surely this would have run afoul of Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? Radiallahu uh, anhu. Uh, was, was Ali secretly reciting the, the uncorrupted form of these verses in his home with Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein? 
You know, if certain Shiites should answer this question with a yes, uh, then when Ali became caliph and moved the capital to Kufa, why didn't he call for another codex committee to correct the Mus'haf? I mean, he could have done that. He became Khalifatul Muslimin. He was Amir al-Mu'minin, right? Why, why didn't he form a second committee to restore these verses and correct the Uthmani Codex. What did Ali actually do? Well, he led the prayers in Kufa every day by reciting the Uthmani textual tradition. Okay, he recited exactly what was presented to the Kufans five years earlier by Abdurrahman al-Sulami, the Qari who brought the Codex uh, uh, into Kufa from Medina. So, so my question for the few Shiite leaders who continue to claim that the Uthmani Codex is corrupted, is this. Do you really believe that Ali was reciting in prayer what he believed to be a corrupted Quran? You know, every answer to this question is going to be problematic. So, so the claim that the committee corrupted the Quran because they wanted to disparage and delegitimize the family of the Prophet is just is absolute garbage. Now, the second piece of evidence that these anti-Quran polemicists will use uh, in order to throw suspicion upon the Codex Committee is the fact that some of the readings in the companion codices differed from the Uthmani Codex. And we talked about this, but now I want to specifically talk about the Sun'a Palimpsest. Okay, I think we've arrived now. Finally um, got here, finally got to this. Finally got here, yes. <laughs> Building up and here we are. Yeah. It's all downhill from here. So, so, so we talked about Ibn Mas'ud and Ibn Ka'b, right? Now, the lower text of the Yemeni Palimpsest is, is another example. According to the most authoritative academic study done on the palimpsest, which was by Sadri and Udarzi, the lower text of the Yemeni palimpsest was most likely a companion codex. Okay, Sadri calls it C1, as we said, uh, the codex of an unknown companion. It's the only manuscript of the Quran ever discovered that is not part of the Uthmani textual tradition or the Uthmani textual stemma or family. C1 is about 41% of the Quran. It was most likely uh, written between 617 and 647 of the Common Era, obviously before the Codex Committee. Now, I've already explained why there are some differences among the companion textual traditions, right? According to our, our traditional sources, there are four possible reasons, uh, different spelling conventions, variants due to the revealed ahruf, where the rasm is different, possible scribal errors, possible exegetical glosses or notes made by companions, the lower text of C1 is, is no different, just as our tradition perfectly explains the variance in the textual traditions of Ibn Mas'ud and Ubay ibn Ka'ab. It also perfectly explains the variance in the textual tradition of C1. Uh, so at the end of the day, C1 is what one of my colleagues referred to as a big nothing burger, right? The, the discovery uh, of C1 a big actually- nothing, A big nothing burger, did you say? Burger, yeah. A bit, I don't know if you have that expression. No, I, like I, something I, that's hyped up. Something that's hyped up, but turns out to be nothing. Okay. It's we, don't have that, we, don't, we don't have that in England, that expression. <laughs> anyway, that's okay. It's going to make its way over there now. <laughs> Thanks, Adrian. <laughs> Transmission <laughs> route is very clear. We know, we know who to blame if it does come over here. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it, it, the discovery of C1 actually supports the Muslim narrative. Right. Uh, so so anti-Muslim polemicists, they wanted so bad, right, to find additional verses, additional surahs or highly theologically significant material in C1 when compared to the Uthmani textual tradition. There was nothing significant. They wanted the differences between the companion codices 
and the Uthmani text to be as great as the differences between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. They wanted to find something equivalent to the, the Pericope Adulteri, or the Johannine Coma, or the Longer Ending of Mark. They were disappointed. Okay. Uh, now, there's, there's an outstanding short video, actually, I recommend on YouTube, that explains the nature of the differences found in the Palimpsest. It's called... Um, what do the Sun'a manuscripts tell us about the Qur'an by Al-Muqaddima? Um, so I, I recommend that. I'll quickly summarize the major findings. Okay, there are 35 minor textual differences between C1 and the Uthmani text, where instead of a wa, it says fa, instead of lan, it says la, or a definite article is missing from a word. Okay, these are all differences in prepositions, particles, and, and definite articles. Uh, there are also another 25 or so textual differences in nouns and verbs. 18 of the 25 um, are with similar sounding words. 18 of the 25. So these are easily explained away as human error, right? Sometimes a word in C1 is missing when compared to Uthman. This is, again, most likely human error. People were more, much more likely to leave a word out when, when writing from memory than add a word. There are a few instances, however, where C1 has an extra word when compared to Uthman, but these can be explained away as textual assimilation, okay, which is another form of human error. But for example, in the Uthmani tradition, chapter 2, verse 193, Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 193 says, C1, the same verse reads, So C1 has an extra word, kulluhu. Right? Where did C1 get this word from? Well, it's very likely that the scribe confused 2193 with chapter 8, verse 39, because 839 sounds a lot like 2193. And 839 does, in fact, read, Okay, so this is called textual assimilation of parallel verses. Textual assimilation of parallel verses. This is very common. I mean, I do this all the time when I'm memorizing, at least when I'm trying to memorize. The Quran, I confuse similar sounding verses. But, 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 but all these phenomena you're talking about are very well researched and documented in the biblical manuscript traditions. And all of these are understood and made allowances for, and no two manuscripts are absolutely identical because they're all written by hand. So that this is well, a well-developed and understood science in a way in the biblical manuscript tradition, textual criticism. So we should really allow um, some leeway in, in, in the, the Uthmanic and other textual traditions in the, of the Quran, because we're dealing with human beings who are copying manuscripts. It's the same process. It's hu fallible humans. So we would expect, I would think, we would expect to see precisely the kind of phenomena which you have detailed. If we didn't see it, we, there'd be a, I would think there'd be a problem because how yeah, could it be so different? So this is precisely what we should and do, in fact, see. And as you say, it's to do with um, you know, misremembering or actually thinking of another verse when uh, and, and that's inserted into all this is well recognized in the biblical tradition. So we should make that uh, allowance, I think, for the Quranic manuscript tradition, if we're going to be exactly. fair and balanced on this. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, they say when you get older, four things happen to you, right? Number one, your memory weakens, and I don't remember the other three. Very <laughs> <laughs> witty. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so almost all of these additions in C1 can be explained by textual assimilation of parallel verses. Yeah. There are more instances where the Uthmani text has additional words that are not in C1. Now, this is interesting. According to Sadiqi and Bergman, they have a paper called, um, an academic paper called The Codex of a Companion of the Prophet and the Quran of the Prophet. 
They say this means that the Uthmani tradition is closer to the prophetic archetype right, than right. C1 or Ibn Mas'ud. Okay. Now, from our perspective as Muslims, we have no problem saying that it, it is possible that many of these differences between C1 and the Uthmani Codex are due to the revealed seven Ahruf. In other words, it's possible that 2193 was also revealed as uh, and that the Uthmani Committee you know, stabilized the Rasam based upon the most prevalent reading. With, with this verse specifically, however, it just seems like a scribal error. Right. So 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 here's the conclusion of, of Sadiqi and, and Yui Bergman about the Yemeni palimpsest. And I'll end this section uh, with this quote. Uh, they say, in any case, textual criticism suggests the standard version. So what do they mean by standard version? They mean the Uthmani textual tradition. The standard version is the most faithful representation among the known codices of the Quran as recited by the prophet. This appears at first as a curious coincidence, but on second thought, it is not surprising. If anyone had the resources to ensure that a reliable version be chosen, it would have been the caliph. And if anyone had more to lose by botching up the task, again, it would have been Uthman, whose political legitimacy and efficacy as caliph depended completely on the goodwill of fellow distinguished associates of the prophet. The remarkable few and minor skeletal morphemic differences among the codices Uthman sent to the cities is another indication of the care that was put into the process of standardization. And I'll talk about those minor skeletal morphemic differences in a minute here. Okay. Okay. Now, at this point, I want to talk about how we go from the Uthmani Masahif to the 10 authorized Qira'at. In other words, how do we go from the Uthmani textual tradition to the canonical reading traditions? Okay, so the Caliph Uthman, radiallahu anhu, he sent four, five, uh, seven, up to 11 copies of the Medinan Master Codex to these Amsar, these major Muslim metropolitan areas. Uh, there are various reports. According to Suyuti, the most popular report states that he, he made five copies of the Master Codex and sent them to Mecca, Basra, Kufa, Damascus, and, and another one in Medina. However, these codices were obviously unvoweled. Right? So, so the diacritical system had not yet been invented. So Abu Aswad al-Duali would develop an early form of them a bit later. But these codices were also dotless, and, and dots were used by the Arabs at the time. So why didn't Uthman dot his codices? Well, the answer is very simple. By leaving the rusum, right, the consonantal skeletons of these codices undotted, uh, Uthman allowed for the ahruf to be accommodated by reciters. So reciters in these amsar could plug into the text the divinely revealed ahruf, the recitational variances given to the prophet. And definitively dotting the text would have severely limited their abilities to do this. Again, the text of the Quran had always been multiformic, not uniformic, since the time of the prophet. And so Uthman wanted that, that key aspect of the Quran to be transmitted to the next generation. Now, I said earlier that Uthman's committee stabilized the text once and for all, and that's true. But, but uh, how would all of the Ahruf in their totality be accommodated by the Uthmani codices, hence the Uthmani textual tradition? Well, the most, co uh, the most uh, coherent answer is that they were not all accommodated in their totality. So it is not the opinion of our classical scholars that the totality of the Ahruf must be preserved and recited in order for the Quran to be preserved. As long as at least one harf is presented of any given verse, 
then the Quran is preserved. Okay, this is Imam al-Jazari, Ibn Hajj Hajj al-Asqalani, Makki, Ibn Abi Talib. Not all the ahruf in their totality are contained within the Uthmani textual tradition. That is not necessary. Remember, the ahruf were given as a concession, a rukhsa, right? And so one may abandon a concession. So this is why, for example, uh, all of the Uthmani codices read ihin, right, in Surah 101, verse 5. ihnin manfu. And not suf al manfush, as we said. If suf was revealed as a harf, it did not. It did not need to be accommodated. And having rusum that were at odds would have caused more turmoil among the provinces. We talked about that. So the committee chose ihnil manfush because that was the more popular reading, the more uh, widespread rendition of the prophetic archetype. And so that's what they wrote in all of the regional codices. But even with this said, okay, even with this said, Uthman did allow for a slight variance in the rusum of his codices when it came to some particular variations, like prepositions and particles, but not words or phrases. So according to uh, Abu Urbayt ibn Salam, uh, Uthman's six codices were in 99.999% agreement in the rusum. There was a difference of 43 characters out of almost 374,000 characters. And this was intentional. So the committee did accommodate for a few of the well-attested particular variations that very slightly altered the rusum, okay, the, the, the consonantal skeleton. For example, in the Meccan Codex, in the codex sent to Mecca, okay, uh, there, is an, there is an additional preposition, min, in verse 100 of the ninth surah. Okay, uh, that does not appear in the other codices. So that is two characters, a meme and a noon. All right, there are a few more of these totaling 43 characters across six codices. So so again, these were intentional. They were accommodating various authorized readings. But here's another question. Uh, How did the reciters living in these Amsar, living in these regional provinces, how did they know how to plug the Akros into the Rasul? Uh, how did they know how to read an unvoweled, undotted text? Was it all just guesswork? Now, classical Orientalists like uh, Goldzire and Arthur Jeffrey, they, they used to claim that indeed reciters were at total liberty to vowel and dot the text however they wanted. As long as the text made some sort of sense to them, it was all good. And this is why different reading traditions eventually developed, according to these Orientalists. And today, some you know, neo-Orientalists and Christian polemicists still, still say this. This claim is demonstrably false. And, and I'll show you why uh, here in a minute here. Uh, but first, what, what else do our sources say about what Uthman did? So Uthman, mashallah, did an incredible service for this religion. He did not simply send these codices to these cities without guidance. Uh, with, he sent with each codex a master qari a trained reciter of the Quran, who was either a companion of the prophet or a student of a companion who had mastered how to read his respective codex upon all of its possible and authentically transmitted ahruf. So for example, he sent Al-Mughira ibn Shihab uh, to Syria uh, with the Damascene codex. He sent Abdurrahman ibn Sulami to Kufa with the Kufan codex, etc. So it was these committee-appointed Qur'an who taught the regional Qur'an, the regional reciters, how to read the codices. And I'll demonstrate this uh, in, in, in a minute. Imam Suyuti quoted Zayd ibn Thabit, who said, Al-Qira'a Sunnah, right? Recitation is Sunnah, i.e. it is from the Prophet. All of this was talaqi. The recitation of the Quran was passed down verbatim 
from teacher to student, teacher to student, okay, uh, until it reached us. Okay, so how does this work? So, so imagine uh, Abdurrahman al-Sulami arrives in Kufa with his codex, arrives from Medina, sent by Uthman. Ibn Mas'ud's textual tradition, right, was already popular in Kufa when al-Sulami arrived. However, many of the readings of Ibn Mas'ud were either abrogated by the Prophet during his final mu'aradah with Gabriel, or they were abandoned by the committee because they were not strongly backed by the majority of the companions in Medina, and Uthman wanted to stabilize the text. However, by and large, the Uthmani textual tradition and the textual tradition of Ibn Mas'ud were in total agreement, as we said. In fact, as, as we said, the, the Uthmani textual tradition was based upon the strongest readings of the companions, including many of the readings of Ibn Mas'ud. This is why Abdullah Ibn Mas'ud is mentioned in the Isnad of Hafs and Asim, along with other Sahaba, right? So the Isnad begins um, with the Prophet وسلم, and then Ali ibn Abi Talib and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Ubay ibn Muqab and Zayd ibn Thabit and others, but these are the most eminent. Then Abdurrahman al-Sulami, the master Qari who brought the Kufan Codex from Medina. Uh, then his most prominent student, Asim ibn Abi Najud. Then one of his most prominent students, Hafs ibn, ibn Sulaiman. Okay, so here's another question. Question though, how, how did how did Asim vowel and dot his his regional codex? You know, did he have you know absolute free reign to vowel and dot whatever he wanted, uh, as long as the uh, uh, text made sense, um, or did he have uh, no choice whatsoever? Um, the answer is in the middle. So he had what's known as ikhtiar al qari. He had the ability to choose, but only from a uh, from among a fixed number of variants that all had origin in the prophetic archetype. Okay, so variants that were taught to him by his teacher, Abdurrahman al-Sulami, who mastered the Uthmani textual tradition with all of its possible ahruf, variants that had strong and connected chains of transmission. Okay, so reciters were obligated to fulfill three conditions when they chose their readings. Okay, so in other words, in order for uh, their readings to be correct and authorized, they must fulfill three conditions. <clears throat> Number one, their readings must be incorrect, uh, sorry, must be in agreement with the rasam of at least one of the Uthmani codices. Number two, their readings must be mass transmitted, that is transmitted through generations after generations of reciters with uninterrupted chains of transmission, tracing back to the Prophet And number three, uh, and number three is more secondary, their readings must be in correct Arabic. And I say secondary because there's nothing mass transmitted that agrees with the Uthmani textual tradition that is in incorrect Arabic. In other words, if, if the first two conditions are met, the third is automatically met. Now, now, Van Putin claims that there is an authorized reading in the Uthmani textual tradition that is in incorrect Arabic and in that, in that the Quran contains uh, a grammatical error. Uh, this is false. He's, he's wrong. We'll, we'll look at that. And also some of the claims of uh, Shadi Nasser in part two of this, of this series, inshallah we actually look at the content of the Qur'an, the style of the Qur'an. Now, in the fourth century Hijri, okay, an Iraqi scholar named Abu Bakr ibn Mujahid uh, wrote a famous book called Kitab al-Sab'ah fi al-Qur'at. Okay, uh, he died in um, 936 of the Common Era. Now, now, during his time, there were many, many correct reading traditions, okay, Qur'at, within the Uthmani textual tradition. Dozens of Qur'at had, had risen to prominence 
uh, over the last uh, couple of centuries. Ibn Mujahid, he chose seven of these popular reading traditions and he documented them in his book, Kitab al-Sabah. Okay, so these are Ibn Amr, Abu Amr, um, Ibn Kathir, Nafi, Hamza, Al-Kisai, and Asim. Okay, but two points here that I'll make. Th these reading traditions were already very popular even before Ibn Mujahid was born. Okay, this fact is mentioned explicitly by Suyuti in the Itqan. And this is why Ibn Mujahid you know, chose them. His, his choosing of them probably made them more popular, but they were already popular. Uh, Abu Ubaid ibn Salam made mention of these reading traditions before Ibn Mujahid. Suyuti said that by the end of the second century, Hijri, before Ibn Mujahid, he said people were upon the readings of Abu Amr, Hamza, Asim, Ibn Amr, Ibn Kathir, and Nafi. Uh, the second point is that each one of these eponymous qurra, highlighted by uh, Ibn Mujahid, had a multitude of students who had been transmitting the Qur'an from them. So these were huge, vibrant reading traditions. Okay, one of these eponymous Qur'a, Ibn Amr, learned the Qur'an under the companion of the Prophet, Abu Darda. This is according to Ibn Asakir in his Tarikh uh, al-Dimashq, in his history of Damascus. Ibn Amr learned the Qur'an from Abu Darda, who had 1,600 students. So Ibn Amr was one of the 1,600 students, 1,600 students of, of Abu Darda. One companion had 1,600 students. Now imagine how many total students from the Tabi'in, right, from the second generation there were, from all of the Sahaba who transmitted and taught the Qur'an. So even if 10%, so there's, you know, 100,000 companions of the Prophet, right? Even if 10% of the Sahaba were transmitting the Qur'an, that's 10,000 Sahaba, if each just had 50 students, that's half a million students in the second generation. So in reality, the numbers are in the millions. This is called mass transmission. This is called tawato. Okay, now, this is very important to understand. <clears throat> Over time, many people erroneously conflated these seven reading traditions, okay, uh, um, these seven reading traditions in Ibn Mujahid's book with the seven ahruf, because it's the same number, right? And so many people started to say that there were only seven correct reading traditions because the Prophet said the Qur'an was revealed upon seven ahruf. This, of course, was a major misunderstanding. The qira'at and ahruf are not the same things, but they started to say, you know, Asim is one haruf and Nafi is one haruf and Ibn Amr is one haruf. No, Asim and Nafi and Ibn Amr are qira'at that drew from the pool of the seven ahruf. Okay, so that's a very important distinction. Now, at this point, <clears throat> Abu Amr al-Dani, he basically simplified Ibn Mujahid's text. Okay, so, so al-Dani chose two popular students um, of each of the seven eponymous qurra and documented their readings. Okay, so these are called the two rawis or canonical transmitters. Okay, so in Kufa, the reading tradition of Asim became popular. We mentioned that. How did it become popular? It became popular through his two top students, one was Shu'ba and one was Hafs ibn Sulaiman. Okay, the reading traditions of Shu'ba and Hafs were documented by Adani and eventually standardized with voweling and dotting. So this really makes 14 canonical and authorized reading traditions, seven eponymous Qurra through their two respective rawis. So seven times two is 14. Okay, about four centuries after uh, Ibn Mujahid, Imam Shamsuddin al Jazari whom Suyuti considered the greatest scholar ever in the field of Qiraat, 
he wrote a masterpiece called Kitab al-Nashr fi Qara'at al-Ashr. So al-Jazri died 1429 of the Common Era. And so Imam al-Jazri said that, in fact, the reading traditions of Ya'qub al-Basri, Abu Ja'far al-Madani, and Khalaf al-Baghdadi, uh, transmitted through their respective rawis, were also correct and had always been correct in mass transmitted and multiply tested. And so there are 20 canonical reading traditions. So, so 10 eponymous qura' through their respective two rawis. And today about 95% of the Sunni world reads hafs and, hafs and asim, right? So the reading tradition of, of Qari Asim through his rawi, his transmitter, hafs. 3% reads warsh and nafir. And the remaining uh, 2% are divided between Qalun and Nafir and probably uh, Ibn Dhaqwan and Ibn, uh, in, uh, Ibn, Am, Ibn Amr and Ad-Duri uh, uh, and Ibn uh, Abi Amr. Uh, the other 15 are studied uh, and memorized uh, and known by Quran masters, but not so much recited in public uh, congregational uh, prayers. By the way, there's a, there's a really good website called nquran.com, N as in newspaper, Quran.com. It's in Arabic. Uh, but uh, it, it shows you, um, you put in any verse in the Quran, it'll show you what, what every single rawi, what every single transmitter from, from the 10 uh, eponymous uh, readers, how they read that particular uh, verse. Now, there are two things concerning this topic that polemicists love to point out here. Okay, so I'm going to mention them. Uh, Ibn Mujahid, right, he, he chose uh, these seven reading traditions. But he also criticized and disagreed with some individual articulations of a few words. So this is true. First of all, he never criticized anything in Asim, Nafir, and Abu Amr, which is basically the entire Ummah today. Uh, but he did criticize Ibn Amr a few times, and Hamza once, and I think Qunbul, one of the transmitters of Ibn Kathir, uh, I think once. Uh, so, I mean, it's like a total of six or eight words across seven qiraat that he disagreed with. So, so the Quran has roughly 77,000 words, 77,000 times seven qiraat is about 540,000 words. So out of 540,000 words, Ibn Mujahid disagreed with six or eight of them. Okay, so I'll give you an example of what we're dealing with here. Uh, so he disagreed with Qumbul, Qumbul's reading of chapter 96, verse seven. So I'll recite the dominant reading among the eponymous readers, and then I'll recite Qumbul's reading. So this is the reading he agreed with. Right? And here's Qumbul. Now, not much different. Sounds pretty much the same. Uh, you know, I think this is Ibn Mujahid just nitpicking. Uh, the polemicists, however, you know, they're, they're turning this into the longer ending of Mark, right? So, <laughs> so Ibn, Ibn Mujahid also criticized one word in the entire Qira'ah of, of Hamza. Right. It's in uh, chapter 18, verse 97 of the Quran. So here's the dominant reading, and then Hamza's reading. So the dominant reading says, فَمَسْتَعُوا. Again, فَمَسْتَعُوا. Now Hamza. فَمَسْتَعُوا. Now, maybe you didn't pick up on the difference. No. I mean, that is, that is literally the difference. Again, this is Ibn Mujahid sort of nitpicking. But this is the hill that these polemicists really want to die on. Um, now, Christian apologists, they enjoy citing an essay by uh, Gabriel Said Reynolds uh, in, in a compendium called The Quran and Its Historical Context, where Reynolds, who's also the editor of the book, he goes into some of these things. Uh, but Reynolds actually says, and this is a quote from him, Ibn Mujahid argued that there are seven equally valid qira'at. 
Ibn Mujahid argued that there are seven equally valid qira'at. And that's true. This is why Ibn Mujahid wrote his book in the first place. So, so which is it? Is, is Ibn Mujahid saying that these seven are all valid? Or is he saying that there are errors and mistakes in some of them? Like readings in Hamza and Ibn Amr and Qunbul that I mentioned earlier. And, and so uh, these are invalid. Which, which is it? Is it valid or invalid? So mm-hmm. how do we harmonize these things? Well, it's simple. Ibn Mujahid did believe that these were equally valid qira'at because they were multiply tested. They conformed to the Uthmani Rasam and they were in sound Arabic. But he simply did not prefer them, these six or so words, these few words, half a dozen words. There were strange articulations to him that should be avoided. That makes the most sense. Okay. But, okay, let's say for argument's sake that indeed Ibn Mujahid believed in his heart of hearts uh, that these six or eight words okay, were incorrect, and he rejected them as being revealed to the Prophet. They're not the Qur'an. Here's my response. So what? That was one man's opinion. Ibn Mujahid was a great scholar, but he was not the be-all, end-all when it came to the Qira'at. Our religion is not built upon the opinion of one scholar. It's built upon the Jama'ah, the overwhelming majority. This is why we're called Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, right? The, the Qira'at of the seven eponymous readers selected by Ibn Mujahid for his book were universally accepted as being valid before and after Ibn Mujahid. So Ibn Mujahid was simply wrong to disagree with and reject those few articulations, right? The Prophet ﷺ, he said, Yadullahi al-jama'ah. Very famous hadith. If we were to make ta'wil of this hadith, the protection of God is with the majority, right? And here's the second thing that these polemicists like to point out. Uh, the fact that some traditional Muslim scholars criticized Hafs, Imam Hafs, with respect to his knowledge of hadith, that he was weak in hadith or that he's rejected in hadith. Uh, so how, how are we taking Quran from him? My, my response again here is, so what? Hadith was not his tachassus, was not his specialty, okay? <laughs> many of the best Quran today, many of the best reciters of the Quran, masters of the Quran today are not necessarily masters or scholars of hadith. They're masters, they're a'imma of the Quran, of qira'at. Right? Their focus was on the Qur'an. The focus of Hafs ibn Sulaiman was on the Qur'an. That's number one. He was an absolute master of the Qur'an. Number two, the Hadith scholars who criticized his knowledge of Hadith praised him in his transmission and recitation of the Qur'an. So these are two separate disciplines. Right? Uh, there is not a single example of a traditional Sunni scholar uh, quoting a Qira'ah of Imam Hafs and claiming that it's fabricated or somehow uh, false. Falsified. So the polemicists are once again clutching at straws here. Now, <clears throat> now a popular claim of, of modern polemicists, okay, is that Ibn Mujahid, using the sort of apparatus of the Abbasid government, he used to prosecute anyone who read outside of his, of his chosen seven reading traditions. So this is a bit misleading, okay? So let me say two, uh, two things about this. Number one, it is true that the state authorities did prosecute certain qurra, yes, uh, but really only two types of qurra. Okay, so the first type who would deviate from the Uthmani textual tradition and would publicly recite according to the uh, textual traditions of individual companions, such as Ibn Mas'ud and, and uh, Ibn Ka'ab and others uh, that were not mass transmitted, right? So such a man was Qari Muhammad ibn Ahmad uh, Ibn Ayyub al-Baghdadi, who was more popularly known as Ibn Shanbut, 
who died in 939 of the Common Era. So he would recite Ahruf uh, that were known by solitary reports, not mass transmitted reports, all right, which were not accommodated by the Uthmani codices. So he was, he was lashed a few times and he was released. Uh, the second type was um, someone like Qari Abu Bakr ibn Miqsam, who died in 965 of the Common Era. He stuck to the Rasm of the Uthmani Codex, okay? And he knew the canonical readings, but he believed that it was permissible to vowel and dot the Rasm however he wanted, as long as the Arabic was correct and without even the slightest consideration for Isna. And he repented uh, of this. So no one was burned at the stake or impaled or had their bones crushed, nothing like this. Um, the second point is that if, if Ibn Mujahid prosecuted Qura, who read according to Yaqub or Khalaf, for example, what is today considered authentic, then how on earth did those reading traditions survive and thrive until the time of Al-Jazari, 400 years later, who said that they were mass transmitted authentic readings? You know, why weren't those thousands of Qurra who were reading according to Yaqub and Khalaf and Abu Jafar, why weren't they brought up on charges? And, and by the way, the case of Ibn Miqsam absolutely destroys the Orientalist and Christian claims that textual variants within the Uthmani textual tradition were the result of Qurra having absolutely free reign when deciphering the rusum of the Uthmani codices. Ibn Miqsam was arrested for doing this. He was arrested for voweling and dotting the text however he wanted. He was arrested for bypassing oral tradition, for bypassing handed down tradition and basing his recitation on his own ijtihad and his, on his own opinion, right? So here's the important point. Unauthorized readings were investigated from the very beginning. Remember, Omar dragged Hisham, right, to the prophet because he suspected Hisham's reading to be incorrect and unauthorized. Muslims were always, always very, very intent on getting the Quran exactly right. Okay, now I want to provide further evidence um, that the claim of the Orientalists and Christian polemicists is simply wrong. So let's, let's restate their claim. Okay, here's, here's the claim, is that the Quran in these regional areas, right, were absolutely free to vowel and dot the text however they wanted, without restriction, as long as the context and meaning and grammar was sound, and that this is why different reading traditions came into existence. So let me show you why this is false. So, so Asim al-Kisai, Yaqub, and Khalaf read al-Fatiha as Maliki Yawmuddin, right? The owner of the Day of Judgment. The other six Qurra, including Nafir, they read this as Maliki Yawmuddin. So it's a 60-40 split, right? So here the Orientalist says, you see, the Rasam allows for both. So some Qurra chose Malik and some chose Malik. They were free to make this choice. And yes, this is true. They were free to make this choice. But here's the problem. In Surah number 3, verse 26, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Qulillahumma malikal mulki tu'til mulka man tasha. Malikal mulk. All 10 eponymous Qurra said, Malikal mulk, here in this verse. It's unanimous. Why? Why didn't the six Qurra who read Maliki Yawmuddin in Al-Fatiha read this as Malikul mulk? It makes total sense according to its meaning. It's contextually valid. It's in correct Arabic. Why didn't anyone choose this reading? Well, it seems to me that they did not have that choice. They were not authorized to read this word in this verse as manic. They did not have uh, this type of recitational latitude in 
This verse, why? What makes sense? It makes perfect sense that the regional Qur'an were constrained by the living oral transmission of the Qur'an, the handed down recitational tradition of the Qur'an. They were constrained by the sunnah of qira'ah. And here's another example of this word, right? In, in the final surah of the Qur'an, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ nas, مَلِكِ nas. Have you ever heard anyone ever recite this as Malikin Nas? No, never. Why? It's unanimous. All ten Qurrase, Malikin Nas. There is no recitational latitude in this verse. Why? Because readers were constrained by the Sunnah of Qira'ah, right? We also find in the Quran, chapter 20, verse 114, the same Rasam in chapter 23, 116, amazing. No Qari ever read these verses as Malikul Haq. If they had free reign, what are the chances of that happening? Right? Here's a totally different example. This is from um, chapter 6, verse 83. It says, Like we raise degrees, we, we raise degrees uh, for whomever we will. Right? Again, the, the Uthmani codices were dotless. All ten Qurra read these two verbs as first-person common. So here's my question. If variant readings of the Uthmani textual tradition originated with the regional Qurra who were voweling and dotting their regional codices at will, according to their ijtihad, then why didn't anyone read this as yarfa'u darajati mayyasha? With the verbs in the third person, it makes perfect sense according to the context of the verse, yet no one read the verse like this. Why? Because they were not authorized to do that. They were constrained by the sunnah of qira'ah. So here's the point. If reciters were free to dot and vowel the rusum of the Uthmani codices as they deemed appropriate, there would have been tens of thousands of variant readings throughout the Quran, tens of thousands. And there really isn't. In reality, reciters were extremely limited as to how to dot and vowel the rasam. Why? Because they were constrained by the living oral transmission of the Qur'an, the handed down recitational tradition of the Qur'an. It was naqal, it's riwayah. These qira'at were talaqi, they're verbatim. They're not bilma'na, they're not according to meaning. They were transmitted with asanid, chains of transmission. This is a most a convincing explanation. But here's another question. How many variants exist in the canonical Uthmani reading traditions. In other words, how many total words in the Quran are affected by the ahruf? Okay, and by words, I mean noun, verbs, and particles. So not counting like dialectical variations because those don't change the meanings. The answer is not very many, just a fraction. According to Ibn Mujahid, it's about 700 words. So that is less than 1% of the Quran. Van Putin thinks this number is too low. He puts it at 2,000 words. So two and a half percent of the Quran, which again is very minimal. If reciters were free to dot and vowel the rusum of the Uthmani codices, however they wanted, according to context, there would have been tens of thousands of words affected, not 700, you know, not 2,000, tens of thousands. Let me give you one last example. This is a good one. A, a da'i from the UK used this example. I think it really strongly demonstrates our contention that qira'ah is sunnah, that the, 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 the reading traditions... Uh, that are canonized, they are from a prophetic origin. So the first verse of Surah Yasin, right? The first verse is Yasin. Okay, so now, now look at the, the word Yasin, how it looks in Arabic. 
Yeah. Right. The, the yah with the two dots underneath connected to the letter seam. Yeah. Now remove the dots. Ima- imagine, you know, what's known as the heikal al-kalima, like the, the consonantal word devoid of dots, right? The, the skeletal word. This is what the Uthmani codices look like. Mm-hmm. Yet everyone, without exception, recited this as Yasin, right? They, they could have recited this as Nunsin or Tasin or Thasin or Basin or Nunshin or Tashin or Thashin or Yashin. Yet all recited Yasin. They had nine other choices at least. Yet all ten Qurra said Yasin. Why? Because they were constrained by the Sunnah of Qira'a. Mm, okay, so this is kind of the, the last part of the presentation, and then I have a short sort of epilogue, but this is really important to mention here, uh, that Suyuti mentions in the Itqan, this is what he learned from Imam al-Jazari, that there are uh, several grades of authenticity with respect to reported Quranic recitations. Okay, so I want to keep this simple. Uh, so, so broadly speaking, there are four main grades of recitation. So if a particular reading fails to meet even one of the even one of the three conditions mentioned earlier, right? Strong chain, agreement with one Uthmanic codex in sound Arabic, right? Then if it fails to meet one of these three, then it is considered an unauthorized reading and it cannot be recited in prayer. So the highest grade obviously is mutawatir, mass transmitted. Okay, and Suyuti says that most readings are of this type. Uh, by consensus, these are the 10 canonical reading traditions as transmitted by their two main rawis. So for Nafir, for example, they are Qalun and Warsh. For Asim, they are Shu'aba and Hafs. Uh, these were reported by groups and groups of Muslim reciters with strong and verified chains of transmission that go back to the Prophet. Then we have Ahad readings. So th- these are readings that have strong chains, but too few reciters. Okay, so they don't have a sufficient number of authorities. Uh, for example, in his Mustadrak, Imam al-Hakim said that on the authority of Ibn Abbas, the Prophet would recite Surah 9, verse 128 as, In addition to Anfusikum. So there has come unto you a messenger from the most noble among you. Anfasikum. Anfasu is the superlative of Nafis. Uh, in addition to the standard, there has come unto you a messenger from among yourselves. Anfasikum. Fusikum, with anfus as the plural of nafs. So the Arabic is correct both ways. The meaning is sound both ways. And both agree with the Uthmani Rasam. Now, none of the canonical reading traditions read this as anfasikum. It was just not very popular. Okay, so could this have been revealed to the Prophet as a harf? Of course, it could have been. But since this harf did not gain prevalence, uh, this reading only has the strength of a sound hadith. So it is not strong enough to be an authorized qira'a of the Qur'an. Because even a sound hadith is not considered absolutely definitive. Okay, there is still a chance of error. It's not a dalil qat'i. So for the Qur'an, we cannot take that chance. It has to be absolutely sound and multiply attested. And then you have shad reading. So shad means isolated, right? Or unsound or anomalous. So a, a shad reading may be in correct Arabic, have a sound meaning, and even agree with the Uthmani Rasam, but the Isnad is somehow unsound or, or defective. For example, uh, instead of, in this example used by Imam Suyuti in the Itqan, instead of saying, Iyaka na'budu, you alone we worship, somebody says, Iyaka yu'abadu, you alone are worshipped. Right? So instead of the verb being first person plural in the active voice, 
it's made you know, third-person masculine in the passive. So these readings have no transmissional basis. So, it, so if a reciter were to recite like this, the authorities would ask him where he learned this. And if he says from so-and-so, the authorities would go to so-and-so and ask him. And so-and-so would say, I just heard it somewhere, or I just vowed it myself, or my brother used to recite like this. And I, and I don't know where he heard it from. So authorities were very rigorous and particular about what reciters were reciting in public. And then finally, we have uh, maudur readings. So these are readings that are deemed fabricated by authorities. Okay, these readings have multiple problems, you know, like in addition to an unsound or non-existent isnad, there are other issues, disagreement with the Uthmani Rasam, grammatical errors, unacceptable meanings. Uh, so, so for example, Abu Aswad al-Duali, he once heard a man recite chapter nine, verse three, as, anna Allah bari'u minal mushrikeen wa rasulihi, instead of rasuluhu. Right. And so the, the former, it changes the meaning to something unacceptable and has no transmissional uh, basis. So Adwali asked the man from where he learned his Qur'a and the man said that he just sort of vowed it uh, himself. So, so Mutawatir readings are without question Qur'an and may be recited in prayer. Ahad readings may have been revealed as Qur'an. Right. They may have been revealed as Ahruf, yet they are outside the Uthmani textual tradition. So Ahruf that were either abrogated or abandoned. Uh, they may not be recited in prayer, but they have the strength of hadith. Uh, it is possible, but also, uh, but very unlikely, uh, that shad readings may also have been revealed as Quranic ahruf, but were abandoned or abrogated. But these readings really don't have any type of authority uh, um, um, other than perhaps serving sort of a minor exegetical function. And finally, maldu'at readings are definitely not Quranic and have no authority whatsoever. Okay. Uh, so that's pretty much the end of the main part of the presentation. Now, as an, as an epilogue, I want to share my thoughts about two things uh, very briefly, okay? So, so one is uh, an oft-repeated hadith mm. um, by anti-Muslim elements, and the other is the work of Daniel Brubaker. Okay, so, so let's start with the first. So Christian missionaries and Shiite apologists so they love a particular hadith in the Sunan of Ibn Majah, right? Where Aisha is reported to have said that a, a goat um, or a sheep ate, ate the page that contained both the stoning and the breastfeeding verses. So they love this hadith. It's like mother's milk to them, right? Um, and by the way, in America, the woke circus is demanding that we say chest feeding now and not breastfeeding. So really? let's make it a point to ignore that. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Aisha said, the verse of stoning and of breastfeeding an adult 10 times was revealed. And the paper was with me under my pillow. When the messenger of Allah died, we were preoccupied with his death and a tame sheep. Some, sometimes it says goat came in and ate it. Okay. Yeah. So, so first things first, we, we don't just accept any hadith uncritically. Okay. So, so this hadith is defective uh, according to probably all Sunni muhaddithin scholars of hadith. Okay, there, are there are several big problems with this hadith. So number one, Ibn Ishaq is in the Isnad, okay? And he was known for being not just weak in hadith, but very questionable in his honesty, in his reliability, to put it mildly. I mean, Imam Malik Ibn Anas, okay? Who was without question one of the greatest scholars in the history of Islam, highly revered, the, the Imam of Medina, founder of the Maliki school, uh, the master of hadith and, and jurisprudence, he referred to Ibn Ishaq as a deceiver, a Dajjal, that is to say, an audacious liar. Also, there are two other versions of this hadith that, that were narrated by Imam Malik and, and, and Yahya ibn Sa'id. 
uh, al-Ansari that do not include this strange comment about a goat or a sheep. Uh, and both, both Malik and Yahya are universally known for their reliability uh, in, in transmission. Uh, the other issue is related to basic reason, mm. right? Let's just focus on stoning, right? There are multiple reports which state that there was a verse revealed to the prophet um, which, which prescribed the stoning of married parties found guilty of adultery, okay? Uh, there's very little dispute about that. There was a verse. Um, several companions of the prophet knew it, memorized it, and recited it. Why was it not included in the Uthmani Codex by the committee? Anything is more plausible than what this hadith is apparently suggesting, right? So according to this hadith, the reason why this verse was no longer recited as the Quran uh, is because a, a goat or a sheep ate the piece of paper upon which the verse was transcribed, as if losing a piece of paper suddenly erases the verse exactly. from the memories of human beings. Exactly. Uh, as I said, in this early period, the written Quran was secondary to what was being recited. This was primarily an oral culture. Another thing is, it is highly implausible that none of the official scribes of the Prophet, uh, who are mentioned in our sources by name and number up to nearly 70 individuals, it's highly implausible that none of those scribes wrote this verse down, right? Nor did any other companion, apparently. Only Aisha had this verse written down, and when the goat ate the paper, the verse magically uh, disappeared, apparently. Mm. Now, here's what probably happened, Okay. The verse of stoning was probably written down by someone and presented to Zaid during the collation process, um, but there was a difference of opinion as to whether the prophet ordered the verse to be officially transcribed, okay? And in fact, there are a few narrations, one in the Mustadrak of Al-Hakim, another in Bayhaqi, I think in Nasai, that mentioned that the prophet disliked that the verse of stoning should be transcribed. So there might have been a problem with securing the two witnesses. Now, at as I said earlier, the, the last two verses of a toba also lacked an additional witness, but they were transcribed by the Codex Committee. Why? Because the last two verses of a toba were widely recited by the generality of the companions, and there was no question of abrogation. So why wasn't the verse of stoning included by the committee? Well, it appears that the Prophet, for some reason, did not recite it as part of the final recension of the Quran in his final review with Gabriel. Whether one believes in Gabriel or not, the committee and many other companions must have been of the opinion uh, that this verse was not to be or no longer to be recited. In other words, the verse of stoning was in some form abrogated by the prophet. Okay, no, no, no goats or sheeps needed. Uh, <laughs> and it seemed that there were a few companions who wanted to keep reciting it as the Quran. But after the committee's investigation and research and inquiry into the matter, they concluded that indeed the verse had been abrogated and the companions who wanted to keep reciting it were simply wrong to do so. Uh, that's it. Um, and then finally here, uh, I want to give my brief thoughts on the work of Daniel Allen Brubaker. So Brubaker is apparently um, a, a scholar, uh, at least he presents himself as a scholar of, of early Quranic manuscripts. So his book is called Corrections in Early Quran Manuscripts. Um, he has a somewhat popular and provocative YouTube channel um, for many, you know, anti-Muslim, you know, Christian polemicists, and Brubaker has become, you know, their new savior, so to speak. Uh, you know, every so often, I think Christian polemicists they christen a new savior, a new champion yeah. who he, he, Jay Smith, Jay Smith, uh, uh, exposes Islam or the Quran or the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, so Brubaker's whole shtick is his claim that several differences in our manuscript tradition are actually deliberate attempts 
by scribes to change the text because the text of the Quran remained, quote, flexible, even centuries beyond its standardization. Uh, several scholars have responded to Brubaker's work um, and have uh, thoroughly debunked his assertions. Dr. Yasser Qadi, um, Dr. Shabir Ali, three Muslim apologists, uh, Mansour Ahmad, uh, I'jaz Ahmad, and Farid al-Bahraini, um, they co-authored a, a fantastic 300-page <coughs> rebuttal to Brubaker. Uh, it's called The Insignificance of Corrections in Early Quran Manuscripts. It's free on academia.edu. I recommend taking a look at it. <coughs> the eminent Turkish scholar of Quranic textual criticism, uh, Dr. Tayyar uh, Artikulak, um, he wrote a, uh, an entire book called Refutation of Brubaker's Corrections. Um, but if people are looking for something brief, uh, then I highly recommend uh, the epic dismantling of Brubaker by none other than Dr. Haytham Sitki. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> this was in 2019. This was Dr. Sitki's review of Brubaker's book in an academic journal called Al-Rasul al-Wusta. Uh, it's something like 15 pages. It's very short. Um, Dr. Sitki writes, uh, it, meaning Brubaker's book, suffers from a number of critical flaws in methodology, analysis, and discussion, end quote. So his review of Brubaker's book is very academic. It's very respectful. There are no ad hominems, right? It's not harsh. It's, it's not highly polemical, but it is kind of the nail, I think, in the coffin of Brubaker's so-called uh, scholarship on the Quran. Uh, Dr. Sitki um, uh, did not have to be polemical or provocative in his review because the facts uh, speak for themselves. The conclusion that anyone will take from Dr. Sitsky's annihilation uh, of Brubaker uh, is that Brubaker is either highly incompetent or, or highly disingenuous <clears> or both. <throat> <clears throat> so Brubaker highlights in his book uh, 20 examples in various manuscripts uh, where scribes uh, changed the standard text, right, the Uthmani Rasam. Uh, Brubaker wants to think that these changes were done with the intention of deliberately altering the, uh, the Uthmani Rasam in order to deviate from the Rasam for some reason. Um, Dr. Sitki also mentions that Brubaker's argument is a straw man, uh, that Brubaker essentially uh, argues against the assumptions of many lay Muslims that the text of the Quran was always a uniform text, even before standardization. Uh, so Brubaker shows uh, very little knowledge of traditional Muslim uh, scholarly literature on manuscripts, on, on variants, on ahruf, on qira'at, <clears throat> etc. I suspect Brubaker does know better, but I think he's banking on the ignorance of his lay Muslim and Christian readers in order to make some sort of uh, dramatic impression. But to give you an example of um, an idea of the state of his scholarship, uh, Brubaker in his book actually peddles Dan Gibson's ridiculous Da Vinci Code-esque theory that Petra was, was the Qibla after Jerusalem and that the prophet was born and raised in Petra, right? So, so Marayn van Putin, he calls the Petra thesis, quote, nonsense, and says that the Quran clearly shows it's taking place in the Hejaz. Uh, Dr. Sean Anthony calls the Petra thesis, quote, total garbage. Um, uh, Dr. Sitki actually makes reference to an academic article by David A. King, who is a scholar of early... Uh, Muslim Qiblas, and the article is called, I love this title, The Petra Fallacy. Early mosques do face the sacred Kaaba in Mecca, but Dan Gibson doesn't know how. Wow. Um, anyway, Brubaker's Arabic, by the way, is atrocious. His pronunciations are horrible. Uh, I mean, they're cringy bad. His translations are often inaccurate. 
it seems like he's a pseudo scholar who's trying to make a few bucks. I don't know, get a few views on his channel. Maybe he's a fraud. I don't know. Maybe we should lump him in with the Christoph Luxembourgs and the Robert Spencers of the world, which reminds me actually, uh, and I'll just mention this quickly. Robert Spencer has a new book. You know, Spencer was one of these post 9-11 opportunists Mm. and disinformation experts, right? His new book is called The Critical Quran. That's what Mm. he called it. The Mm. Critical Quran by a guy who maintains that the Prophet Muhammad never existed, right? I mean, this guy's a radical revisionist crackpot, right? And regurgitates the uh, the, the old and tired and thoroughly debunked positions of John Wansborough. And then he actually refers to Christoph Luxembourg as, quote, a great scholar and philologist. You know, Luxembourg is literally an academic laughingstock. I mean, Luxembourg was the guy who said the Quran, um, who said the Quran was written in an Aramaic Arabic hybrid language. Yeah. Right. True. So like Walid Saleh, Daniel King, Gabriel Reynolds, uh, Robert Hoyland, Angelica Newworth, uh, Van Putin, even Patricia Crone have, have scathing reviews of Luxembourg. I mean, whoever this guy is, he's hiding behind an alias. Uh, but according to Spencer, Luxembourg is a great scholar and, and philologist. And this goes back to the, you know, the guilt complex I mentioned earlier, because what are Muslims saying to Christians? They're saying, you know, you have this New Testament in Greek. Jesus did not speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. So now they're saying, well, the Quran's in Aramaic. Um, it's just a... Uh, it's a, it's a pretty horrible argument. Uh, anyway, just to finish up here, uh, Dr. Sithi goes through all 20 of Brubaker's examples mm. and concludes, he says, quote, the majority of changes mentioned in Brubaker, Brubaker's book are best explained by scribal errors. And Dr. Sithi wonders uh, why even the possibility of scribal error was never even considered by Brubaker when it's clearly the most plausible explanation. I'll spare you the details, but uh, but Dr. Sitki says that basically all of Brubaker's examples are explained by either parablepsis, which is like the eye skipping, uh, didography, which is when you in- inadvertently repeat something, uh, 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 or-, or parallel assimilation that we talked about earlier. In other words, these are all scribal errors. I mean, Sitki concludes that really only one of Brubaker's examples, number five, is worth investigating further. And its final con- conclusion worded very politely is, quote, the main thesis, namely that the flexibility of the Quranic text persisted centuries beyond its standardization remains unproven, end quote. Uh, Whoops. Then I'll just uh, say a couple more things here. Dr. Shavir Ali actually points out something good as well. He says that, of course, individual manuscripts of the Quran can have errors. And you pointed that out as well. Muslim scribes were not infallible. Just because a scribe made a mistake, uh, you know, by leaving out a word or mistakenly assimilated two similar sounding verses in transcribing a manuscript, does it mean that, you know, he changed the Quran or that the Quran is no longer preserved or he thought the Quran was somehow you know, flexible and things like that? This is ridiculous. Also, individual memories of Muslims can have errors. <clears throat> Reciters are not infallible. Reciters make mistakes all the time. Uh, but the Quran has a double check system by which we may know what is the correct reading. It is the collect memory of the reciters of the community, as well as the mass attestation of manuscript mm-hmm. witnesses. And Van Putin is clear on this. I mean, his position is that, is that since the Quran's standardization in 650, the text has not changed at all. It is stable and preserved. Those are his words. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Sitsky also points out that Brubaker failed to show a pattern of changes in the manuscripts throughout the centuries. In other words, uh, Brubaker shows how like the word Allah in a certain verse 
is omitted in a second century manuscript, right? But in multiple first and third century manuscripts of that verse, right, before and after, the word Allah is there. It's, mm-hmm. it's everywhere. In other words, these mistakes, these are clearly mistakes, and these mistakes were not inherited. You know, why were they not inherited? Because the standard text was known. Now, a Christian apologist may say, may say here that, that the vast majority of changes in the Greek New Testament manuscripts were also unintentional scribal errors. And I agree, but as you know, Metzger and Ehrman and Comfort and many others have shown, there were also many deliberate theological changes made to the text. We know this, the longer ending of Mark, the Johannine coma, the Percubi adulteri, uh, the Lucan Jesus sweating blood, the Lucan Jesus asking God to forgive the Jews, uh, the prologue changed from only begotten God to only begotten son, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of the 20 examples presented by Brubaker have even the slightest theological significance. They are unintentional scribal errors, plain and simple, end of story, and mercifully, the end of my presentation. (laughs) (laughs) Very very brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Indeed, um, indeed to Professor Ali Atai from Zaytun. I think think you might be on, on mute. Oh, am I on mute? Is it on mute? No, I'm not on mute, but um, I, I can um, hopefully recording. So thank you very much indeed for uh, your extraordinary presentation. Uh, comprehensive, detailed, intelligible, clear, devastating at the end. Um, I, almost, I almost feel sympathetic, almost feel sympathetic for certain individuals that you have um, uh, devastatingly critiqued, uh, cited others who are critiquing them. Um, thank you, sir. Thank you very much for this resource as well, which that's the whole point of it, really, isn't it? It is a resource for uh, people in the weeks and months, maybe years to come, to have the tools and the information and the knowledge um, to push back against some of these more uh, extreme claims and, and to be infused with knowledge and uh, a, a balanced understanding of the historical and textual and linguistic facts. So um, thank you very much indeed for that. And um well, that, well, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to uh, say any more because you've said it all. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, bless you, bless your channel. And, you know, for the people that are watching this who have not subscribed to Blogging Theology, uh, what's wrong with you? You need to subscribe now <laughs> and uh, keep uh, growing the channel, uh, inshallah. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. Thank you very much. Till next time. Thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.